there is a bear in the woods. For some people, the bear is easy to see. Others don't see it at all. Some people say the bear is tame. Others say it's vicious and dangerous. Since no one can really be sure who's right, isn't it smart to be as strong as the bear? If there is a bear. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. I'm a fan of classic movies. Hello and welcome to Overlapping Dialogue, a podcast of double features dedicated to programming the finest, most eclectic, and downright bizarre film pairings and cataloging the discussions that ensue. We're your gruesome twosome, Kyle and Levi Huffman. I'm Kyle. And I'm Levi. And uh, is there a bear in the woods? What do you think, Levi? No. <laughs> I love, by the way, that was obviously well, I mean, a Reagan yeah. ad from 1984, right. yeah. uh, which was partially in honor of a movie we're doing today from 1984. But I love that there's all that, and then at the very end it says, if there even is a bear. Like, yeah. well, maybe not. I don't know. But, but, but when you like somebody who's prepared. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I was talking about the 1920s the other day because we were talking about the book we're the reading. Good old about days, right? World War II, <laughs> and I was talking about the Great Depression and how Germany had been in its own depression after World War I during that time. Talking about how we eventually got into our Great Depression and just talking about how what a just moral rot the 1920s was. I said, only really alongside the 1980s is it kind of the worst that we ever had. And I kind of moved on. And some of the kids were like, well, wait, what's so bad about the 1980s? And I just kind of shook my head and just kind of stood there and was like, uh, that would get into a lot of specific political opinions that I have that I'm not prepared to go into right now. Uh, ask me some other time. Mm-hmm. And they were like, no, no, what is it? I was just like, no, we got to move on. But yeah, so it's like, don't you want to be prepared if there's something bad going on? Like, I mean, I guess so, but then everything that went along with that, was, right. No, no. We right. want to hear about the vice presidency of George H. W. Bush. Right. Like, yeah. Iran Contra. All that fun stuff. Right. Um. Our pairing today. Speaking of Iran Contra, Modern Warfare, Call of Duty, Modern Warfare. Yeah, do you want to give a review of that? Uh. Know? Well, I'm gonna actually write a really long because I finished it last night. I'm gonna write a really long review of this that'll be on my blog. Uh. But um. It's overall my. I've, I've been replaying it today also a little bit. Uh. I've liked it a little better the second time. It's just a lot. I have a lot of random thoughts about it that I'm not actually going to go into right now. But just to say that it uses, obviously, like this last Modern Warfare game did, a lot of uh, modern events, recent current events, to its own benefit or detriment, whatever. I don't know. Uh, And 
let's just say it's a lot like there's elements of it that are a lot like Sicario too of trying to kind of, of this soldado. Uh, right trying to uh, equate terrorism and immigration this game does a better job of saying no that that doesn't really track and I mean it has characters in the game that are very um, omnipresent of Hispanic or Mexican uh, federal uh, special forces uh, who are like you know in the game a lot and and act as a counterpoint to the villainous aspects of the of the cartel that's in the game, but I don't know. It all just kind of plays into a lot of fear mongering and you know that it boils down to brown people are bad, right? Yeah, yeah, because way. it's that and then the Iranians and the it's like okay, so you got the Russians who are doing some stuff, then you got the Iranians, then you got Al-Qatala, which is basically an Al-Qaeda analog, mm-hmm. and then you've got the cartel. And it's like, mm-hmm. who's doing what? I don't care, I want to shoot the uh, peoples. But the thing that happens, though, over the game, my biggest problem with the game, and I think what uh, I haven't really heard this elsewhere as much, but it seems like, to me, that the game... It just has a lot of gimmick missions. Like, oh, this mission, you're sneaking around doing this. and There's just not as much just, like, action gameplay as there normally is. Well, I was going to ask, how does it compare to 1? Or, or the yeah, most not recent as, rebooted? Not as good as far as that. I mean, it's, it's a really well-made game, and there's a lot of really good missions in it. But it's like a lot of stuff like, oh, you guide somebody to do this, like, over a camera. Or you... They kind of did that in the last game, too, but... Or you're in the AC-130 again, or you're uh, you're sneaking around, or you're jumping between cars to mm-hmm. do the... It's a lot of gimmicks. Like, it seems like every mission's a gimmick, and there's just not as much just basic shoot 'em up action, which sounds kind of like lame brain, but I'm not coming to these games to, like, have all these cool little, like, oh, this thing, that mm-hmm. thing. Like, I gotta sneak up behind somebody and stick them with, like, a... A thing to knock them out so we can interrogate them in Amsterdam and it's like that's basically not even a mission it's just kind of like you're just walking around oh, there's one mission literally where you get captured kind of intentionally by the cartel so that they can ask you questions it's like this isn't a quiz show mm-hmm. I wanted to play the game like you know and so that's kind of my thing about the game is that it has way too many gimmicks going on it should have just been more of but then at the same time I think well isn't that what all these games are and isn't it nice that it's trying to do something different yeah. So I don't know. I, I have a lot of conflicting feelings about the game, but overall, it's a, it, I like it. It's good, but it's not as good as the other one. Um, there's going to, of course, be a third one. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, of course, Shepard turned evil. It's like yeah, mm-hmm. whatever. Done that before. And I haven't been totally sure about this, but I'm pretty because these are all you know soft reboots of those original great games. Mm-hmm. But what was great about those games was, and it was interesting, that they came around the same time as like the Nolan Batman movies and some of these other, like, oh, we need to make these things more realistic. Mm-hmm. But those games just had such a more fluid, intentionally world-ending, apocalyptic nature to them. Oh, this has been a scale back. That yeah. This has been trying to be very stiff and arch and realistic, which is cool to a certain extent, but also, it just takes away the. I'm just here to play a game. Yeah. And this is, and a lot of people would say, why don't you just play the, the multiplayer? Because that's ultimately what most people come to. I mean, I was talking to one of my favorite students this week, and they were like, "Yeah, I'm just playing the multiplayer. I haven't played the campaign yet." And I was kind of like, mm-hmm. "What did you buy the game for? I don't know." Because he was saying, "Yeah, the guns suck in it or whatever." And I was like, 
I mean, I and I honestly was thinking, I don't know, I haven't had a chance to try them out much because I keep walking around doing this thing, doing that thing, you know. Um, but yeah, it feels almost it's kind of actually a lot like Mass Effect Two, where it's kind of setting. It's like after the first game, but setting up for another game almost. It feels kind of. But this is a really long game too. It's actually one of the. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it might be the longest. I'm not sure. And out of that, there's just not... And playing it again, there is more of the action stuff than I had thought the first time, but it still feels like it's kind of lacking on that. And so so to me, my answer to that is, I don't know, I play these for the campaigns. I don't pay them, play them for the multiplayer. Like, this is what the banner thing is. You know who I'd love Although, to play you know, uh, video games with in a multiplayer lobby is Jim Jarmusch and the Farley Brothers. I yes. think that'd be, a, yeah. that'd be a really sick crew, I think, to game with but since we can't do that yeah, but we I, can talk about I, their body of work i just went no scope on you like, <laughs> is no. stranger than paradise from 1984 and dumber than dumber from dumb and dumber 1990 what dumber I than, you said dumber than dumb. dumber than dumb dumber than paradise yeah. <laughs> dumber than stranger than dumb <laughs> stranger than i dumber. think dumber than paradise is my favorite yeah. of those but um dumber um, than strange dumb and stranger i don't know this is a, I don't know if a dumb or strange or Paradise somewhere in the dumber. middle uh, combination, though. Yeah. Um, these are two, as we said last week or, or previous episode, two of my favorite movies in a roundabout way. Both very different movies, but both yeah. very funny in their own They're, ba- uh, they're very similar, though, actually, I think, yeah. watching them. And, uh, in to- and they're both comedies, but in totally different ways. Like in every way, they're different as far as what they think's funny. Yeah. Um. But uh, both in their own way about a pair of deadbeats. Right. Um, and both in the end involve like a weird like either uh ransom transaction or drug deal transaction and randomly. a little bit like, of mistaken identity. Right. Yeah. And so they do have a random yeah. amount of similarities. Uh, this is my favorite pairing we've done so mm-hmm. far of those since we've been pairing up uh stuff. But. Well, you, Day of the Dead and Adam's Family Reunion didn't tickle your, ticker, tickle ticker, your fancy. Didn't tickle your fancy, okay? Uh, but, <laughs> yeah, that was interesting, I will say. Adam's yeah. Family Reunion. Yeah, uh, yeah. Coming at you now. Uh, but we got to. It's been a while. Yeah, like, we cooked Thanksgiving dinner early. Yeah. You know, we got a lot on the plate here for the Blue Plate Special. You got to. You got to. Yeah, not us. No, not, not us. No, you got to. You got to dive in, too. The Blue Plate Special. Hi, Audrey. Norma. Have a cup of coffee, please? Sure. I'll have what she's had. Barbecue bacon burger. Right here. As they say, right here. <laughs> bacon. Um, so, <laughs> it's, you know, it's after the fact. Ooh, it's after Halloween. Oh, who cares whenever. Uh, we saw it before Halloween for what it's yeah. worth. But uh, get, finally getting around to talking about Halloween Ends, which is the third film in the recent David Gordon Green trilogy. Uh, I don't know. It's not. A, you know, it's obviously not a reboot. It right. takes into account the... Who knows what these movies are? Okay, so are definitely anymore. a sequel to the first yes, one. Is it right. a sequel to the second one, even though, or is it even kind no. of disregarding that? Are you talking about the original Halloween yeah, yeah, two? Yeah. No, it is a sequel to the original Halloween, that first one of these newer ones. Disregarded that. 
and disregard even yes. other versions that Jamie Lee Curtis herself has been right. in prior to these. But I gotta say, I kind of because we went did. In the, to, I went yeah. in this with very yeah. low expectations. I don't know if I'd say I love this certainly, but it's my favorite of the three recent yeah. films. And actually goes in a lot of surprising directions that I was not expecting. Yeah, I went in really expecting to hate this and walked away like, huh, that was actually all right. Yeah, like, I mean it's not great, and I didn't love it. And I don't want to overemphasize yeah. this part, but has less Michael Myers than I was expecting. Um, he is more so than in one and two. I feel like. He's almost like this, more like the shark in Jaws in the sense yeah. of people responding to him. Now, the second one had elements of that, but the second one also had a lot of those flashback elements, too, with him. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, oh gosh, what's that actor? He's in Yellowstone. He's in Will Patton. Will Patton, his kind of the flashback of his character back in that, you know. What are you doing with Rosetta Stone? Learns Chinese. <laughs> Japanese. Sorry, Japanese. It was what it was. Uh, so, I was pretty surprised and shocked that I even liked this, uh, frankly, yeah. because I really was pretty nonplussed by the first movie, the first of the rebooted whatever yeah. sequel movies. The second one I just outright did not like. I remember we talked about that on the Beetlejuice pod. Um, this one I did actually like a good amount more. Um, and I think a lot of that, not all of it, but a lot of it has to do with uh, Corey being kind of such this new character that's introduced. Yeah, played and, by um, Rowan Campbell. And um, I was like, frankly shocked that they're kind of this deep into these movies and not only have the courage to introduce a new character like this, but like to have him occupy as much of the real estate of the film as it does. And as I said, it's almost kind of setting him up to be, quote, the next Michael Myers, not literally by... Yeah, he literally tries to put on the mask and almost act as though he's Michael Myers, but even in a more you know larger sense, right. metaphorically be the next Michael Myers. And also the fact that it's willing to, um, you know, give him more of an emotional weight and frankly backstory than Michael Myers ever received from any of these movies. Yeah, even though maybe apart from the Rob Zombie movies, which are totally their own thing. Right. Um. But in general, how do you think this movie fit into these most recent movies and then the Halloween franchise well, in general? And it skips a lot of like, some years between because I know that first, that second Halloween Kills was literally right after the first movie. Yeah, kind of like Halloween Two was originally the original Halloween Two. Yeah, so I get so confusing. Yeah. Not the Rob Zombie Halloween Two, <laughs> the original Halloween Two. Yeah. Uh, funny enough, this is the best movie since Halloween 2, the Rob Zombie movie, yeah. to have been made. Right. Well, um, so, but, let's stop for a second yeah. and talk about those two movies, not in depth. But yeah. don't you feel like there's a lot of um, alternate history now being written about people who now really love the zombie movies, especially Halloween 2, in comparison to maybe these David Gordon Green movies? Uh, yeah. And it's interesting is because obviously the zombie movies are much more... Um, doing their Rob own Zombie thing movies. in their own yeah. lane, and then that these are very trying, very clearly trying to retrace the work done by Carpenter in the original film. Yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. But then yeah, now and, everybody's trying to yeah. act like, oh, I always loved Rob yeah. Zombie's Halloween. Well, I know. People like, hated those forever. And, yeah, and we've liked them pretty much since we've seen them. I, I'm not as crazy about the first one just because it's halfway interesting. Then it just becomes, oh, let's just do Halloween again. Yeah, Halloween two is at least I oh no, let's do these things. <clears throat> and this is kind of what that is. It's more of that type of movie. Uh, 
Halloween in, or Halloween ends, yeah. That it's uh like I said, starts with these new characters and it's interesting that you think, Oh, Michael Myers is gonna show up in the first scene, but it's like no, it's of a totally different other suspense that is shocking and yeah. weird. It's kind of funny how it's like Michael Myers just like hiding out in like a dr- st- like storm drain, yeah. basically, and that like uh, and I I don't know what he's in there eating. I guess he's eating rats and people. I don't know. It's kind of yeah. vague. It seems like it's like what is he like a cannibal? Well, or something it's almost now? already established that he's not a human being, anyways, yeah. considering how the first the second one ended. I mean. Right. Um, but yeah, so he's barely in this, and obviously, this, these, there's this is a spoiler about the movie. So if you haven't seen it, I guess, and if you care at all, then don't listen to this part. I don't know why you want to hear us talk about this movie anyway, but mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but the whole Corey character li- quite literally becomes the new Michael Myers based on his trauma of trauma of having accidentally killed this kid but he was like babysitting right and the kid was playing a prank on him acting like michael myers was there and he like kicked the door so hard slammed the door open and and the kid fell off the stairs and and died it's like a really big like what yeah based on that the way people treat him and kind of being bullied and then he gets in this relationship with the uh main female character that's been in a lot of these movies that was uh Jimmy the Curse's uh, granddaughter, right? Yeah, uh, Lori Strode, Andy Machadiac, uh, or Matichak. Um Allison was her name, right? Um, and it was her mother that was Judy Greer's character yes, that got right. killed. At the yeah, end of the very week. unceremoniously. Yeah, uh, and her father was that guy that was in uh, Blonde recently, and then had been in uh, uh, Carnival. I think yeah. that like real annoying guy. Can't remember his name. Anyway, uh, and so there's all this stuff going on, and I, and there were portions of that movie I really loved where it was like quite literally doing this whole like because uh, there was like scenes of him killing people, and then them like riding on a motorcycle, and it was like trying to do that whole. Uh, interestingly though, trying to do that whole Badlands or like you know lovers on the run thing mm-hmm. but but it was in a different way that was like no he's not wanting to go anywhere he's just wanting to stay and they're want they're planning on leaving because the town's so screwed up yeah but there were sequences of that i found very compelling even in ways that moves in the 80s because it felt very much like an 80s movie but i felt like an 80s movie never did anything like that where it was like it was always casting that sort of character in a more positive light like oh look at how sad they are or oh Something's going on with them, but it's they're being attacked or whatever. But from this, it was like, no, he's totally lost his mind and is a murderous psychopath. Like, yeah, you know? and I mean, it um, gradually ratcheted that up. A right, it didn't happen immediately. Yeah, you know? and uh, and so all that was just so new. Um, and not that you're wanting Michael Myers to show up, but you are kind of like, wait, wait, is this a Halloween? And movie, honestly, you know? the movie would have been even better if he wouldn't have been in it. If they would have just been like. No, yeah, like if they would have actually killed him at the end of that movie, and then they say, "Oh, we've got one more movie," and it's then like it about somebody about this kid maybe trying to be the quote next Michael Myers, but that you know, right? But there is no official Michael Myers, right? In it, you know, so that in that way, it kind of felt weird because then the movie gets to the point where it's like, all right, we Corey's dealt with. He gets killed at the end. Oh, but and by the way, real Michael Myers shows right, up. Right, so and then it's like, oh, to, now he's here. And that feels and, so perfunctory as a climax. Right, because it's like, oh, we have to wrap this up. It's like, 
Yeah, first of all, you never needed to wrap it up because the movies never needed to be made, and also you should have ended the last movie with his death. Mm-hmm. Um, he definitely died in this one. Yes, they literally like the whole town had like a funeral procession, basically, where they and threw they him threw in the, him in the like garbage compactor, yeah. and literally, it literally showed the shot of of his. But these movies get more and more violent. It's actually quite impressive, honestly. Mm-hmm. That it's like. I know we've talked about that a lot the last so many years about these movies and then the Don't Breathe mm-hmm. movies, especially the second one, but just the awful violence <laughs> that happened. And it's like, can it get worse? And then somehow it always does. And it's yeah. just like, I I mean, this is quite literally one of the most violent movies I've ever seen. It's mm-hmm. just to the point where... You said that about the second one. Too, not, I remember, yeah, yeah, I mean, to the point where it's almost not even remarkable. It's just kind of like, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. Uh, but... Uh, yeah, because there was that part <laughs> kind of made me laugh. Well, there's that whole character in the movie that's... Let me find what his name was. Because uh, it just... I just forgot. Um, that, like, guy that was the... Uh, yeah. W- uh, Karan Harris's Willie the Kid, a local DJ. radio DJ. Yeah. And he's, like, in the movie very prominently and annoyingly. And mm-hmm. I remember we were watching it and we were like... All right, what's this gonna be? Yeah, right. right. You know, and yeah. it's like that's all well, anybody in the town listens to. This radio station right. and like keep showing like, it. And so it's like, like they should have done more of that. Like Samuel Jackson in Do the Right Thing. They didn't even put enough effort into it though. It was yeah, kind of no it was just day. like annoying. No time out, time out. Yeah, and they kind of did something like that honestly in. Uh, Halloween 2, the Rob Zombie Halloween 2 with uh, Ken Forey's character in that was Mm -hmm. kind of a somewhat similar, I think he was like a strip club owner or something. Mm -hmm. But they did kind of a similar thing with that where it was just like, why are we doing this? But literally there's that part where he goes in and cuts his like tongue out with a pair of scissors or something. And then he puts it on the needle of the record and it keeps hitting it. And that's like kind of funny in like a really gruesome way. But it's just like Stuff in this movie that happened, it just gets so bad. That I mean, it was in that second movie. There was that boyfriend of that main girl character who literally it showed he like got his head caught between like the posts of a like stair oh, stair yeah, about that uh, stair. What do you call that? Like the stair rail yeah. that posts, and he literally like like takes his head and like literally like just breaks his neck and turns his head around or whatever. Yeah. And it's just like. Okay. And then all the things like, that were done to Michael Myers that, of course, didn't. Yeah, right. And then, and then, yeah, and this, it was like he got stabbed, but like literally, they had him like laying on like the the island counter in the kitchen, stabbed all these places, and then it's like, oh, the thing that gets him is oh, we we cut his throat. It's mm-hmm. like that's what killed him. Like okay, yeah. but anyway, yeah. So like. Ultimately, and interestingly, this movie randomly with its like opening credits and closing credits tries to be even more vintage with its like font, and yeah, it just gets kind of tiresome. But I mean, yeah, overall, okay, though, but that's it, how it looked in nineteen seventy eight in the movie. So that well, means this one's good. It's twenty twenty two is what yeah. it is, by the way. Yeah, but no, I mean, all that aside, I think that everything else that's there was honestly a step forward for slasher movies is saying, well, what about this thing? Especially, and, like, kind of dealing know. with the epidemic we've... It's ongoing of right. angry white men, you know. Yeah, and we've kind of seen that with like, Scream yeah. already. I think if we wouldn't ago, have had yeah. Scream, it would be even more interesting. And that movie's whole connection to Columbine is very fascinating, obviously. Yeah. But that I feel like this would have been even better had that movie not obviously existed. But then it's like... 
you know, yeah. Scream is great and this is not. But it's, you I know. guess they, you know, they, they announced this whole project would be a, quote, trilogy some time ago. And so I guess if they, uh, as they should have done, again, killed Michael Myers in the second movie, there'd been a lot of people like, oh, but who's, where's the Well, Michael then that Myers would have been at? similar to the original Halloween 3 season of The Witch, mm-hmm. which didn't have, it's all, this is all just nonsense, yeah. by the way. But actually a good, yeah. good, but, good right. surprise. No, it was, movie. it actually was. And that's what's so even more frustrating about the movie in its own way is that it, it wasn't just bad. It was like, well, actually it's kind of, sort of good but there's all these other things that are going on that just dilute it yeah one and more will Patton, obviously yeah, yeah. What, and do him, with, it, what do you do with beef jerky and supermarket yeah. what, what are you gonna do with a can of vegetables like you know which is all referring to armageddon of course but him and Lori finally got their storybook ending you know it's uh, just like what like, and uh, not that i'm saying i think Lori strode should die and suffer but i feel like after everything <laughs> that these movies have put her yeah. through for her to have a kind of a pat happy ending didn't exactly make my a favorite moment in the movie was when she was like to report a suicide and then, like <laughs> fakes her suicide she just knows. because she just knows that Michael Myers is gonna show up well at first wasn't and, it even him it was it uh, was the other guy yeah. yeah but that like yeah she's like but she's like sitting there waiting. and then like she shoots the like uh random like pumpkin that's on the yeah. like but by the way, who would keep a pumpkin in their house like that? This is yeah. so weird. But anyway, and then she's like, uh, basically, you're terminated ever. Like, kind of like <laughs> attitude, you know, where she's like waiting on him or whatever. Um, but yeah, at first, for a few seconds, I was kind of like, wait, did she really do that? And yeah. I was like, no, of course not. Yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, it's another funny thing about that we joked about is like she was rewriting the last page of that friggin' book the whole movie. Mm-hmm. It was like every scene, it was a different ending. Like, well, in many ways, they were rewriting Halloween history. Yeah, I know. It's film, like, so. But all again, Hallow's Eve history. Actually, well, that's the best why it was called the, Halloween Ends because it was like there's so many endings to this book. Yeah. You know? But actually, a surprisingly good yeah. movie. Uh, you know, not yeah. great. I mean, it. And again, I feel like having michael myers be in it perfunctory it was very just again takes away from what the point of the movie is almost trying to be but uh, yeah. yeah yeah i don't know um again the best out of these three movies yeah recently no, a whole lot more to say about that but. uh the devils from 1971 which we levi got recently on vhs yeah because you can't see it anywhere else. And which was a good way to see it, was, it, by the way. Yeah, I mean, it, it streamed on Criterion Channel couple, mm-hmm. about a year ago or something. But I, I don't know why it. this isn't on Disney Plus and she's not easily yeah, accessible, know. you know. It's kind of weird. Wow. What yeah. a movie. I've, now, I've not really seen like, any... Uh, why was this not on Kids WB, you know, years <laughs> uh, ago? That's what I I've know. not really seen any of Ken Russell's work. I'm aware of it. Um, he was Bruce director, right? Yeah. I believe, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, wow, this movie was... I know it had a reputation... But to see it, and again, to see it on grainy VHS almost added to the aesthetic of what's going on mm-hmm. and what it's about. Um, it's reminiscent of a variety of things. The One of the most biggest, obvious things that reminded me of was uh, Black Narcissus, the Powell and Pressburger movie about you know nuns and um, the craziness that comes from nunnery in some ways. Uh, and also just these um, kind of how zealotry can get very easily get off track and off base and someone who is like an incredibly powerful person would can within minutes or moments be this vilified hated mocked 
leader in some way mm-hmm. who's disgraced and is kind of on the path towards being executed. Um, what was your takeaways from the Devils? Well, uh, it's a movie that I, I've anticipated a lot. It's strangely one of the most beloved movies on film Twitter now. Yes. Uh, I think partly because it is so hard to be seen, and I and I wrote this in my review of the movie as well, and we coming f- to the movie as Christians obviously did not react the way most people did to the movie when it came out. But well, I think do I'm going to just say, I think Ken Russell was uh, himself a Catholic. And I, think I think so, uh, yeah. Um, was a Catholic. Right, but I movie, think so it say. is very easy now for most mainstream, you know, liberal progressive cinephiles to just accept the movie at its base level of, yes, religion is evil, and just because ex- we live in such an agnostic and atheistic culture now mm-hmm. that I can find that believable. But otherwise, I mean, and, and also just because the movie's so shocking, uh, mm-hmm. But otherwise, I think it is so strange that the movie has seen this weird second life in the last so many years because it's such a abrasive experience. We even watched an even shorter, even more censored version of the movie that was put out in the 90s on VHS. I know there's a version that's about 10 minutes longer that has even more stuff in it that uh, I know about but wasn't in yeah. the movie. Um, but that, yeah... Um, I mean, it's just really one of the best movies I've ever seen, frankly. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just true. And not even everything of what it says, which I think is all very kind of in its own way obvious and perfunctory, like to use that word again. But I, one thing that was very important about it was its kind of connection to the uh, Ireland and North, what was going on in Northern Ireland at the time of kind of the Troubles and, and all the kind of Protestant and Catholic uh, divide um, in the movie, like I said, if if Russell was Catholic, which they like said I think he was, then it's even more interesting that the movie comes off as so anti-Catholic and kind of not exactly pro-Protestant, but like you know, saying oh, well, what? but all of that is just to say that obviously to I think to totally you know uh, say that either way, one way or the other, or to say oh, it's this or it's that doesn't really fit the movie anyway. Right. But. Um, even still, those statements are so uh, grandiose um, that I find it very fascinating, you know, that they would be made by people of that time period. But the movie is so, I mean, it feels a lot more modern than its time, and it being a British movie, I think, is interesting. The British censors were a lot harder on movies then, by that point uh, than America was, interestingly. Yeah. Um, but that because I, I was thinking a lot about other movies that came out in 1971, like Clockwork Orange. Yeah, and, that, and there were and certain Straw Dogs, things which about are both that about that England reminds me well, of, yeah. Made by not uh, people who are not English, interestingly. Um, Those two lived movies, there, yeah. uh, you know, as far as Kubrick. But, but yeah, the, um, it's just, it's interesting, because I thought a lot about, and I mentioned this in my review, Baz Luhrmann, the Safties, you know, that make these movies that are... Maximalist. Maximalist, and so fast, and they have this rhythm to them that it feels like you're never stopping or having time to think or do anything, and that I hadn't seen a movie that old that had done that, you yes. know, and, and so that felt like a very still modern approximation of a Yeah, it felt of, like there were moments you were seeing that were sped up, right. I mean, you know. And so... In that well, and Scorsese was probably one of the first to kind of do that. Uh, but there is that scene. There's this, there's this taxi driver. sex scene towards the beginning of Clockwork Orange that does have that uh, mm. sped up element to it, right? But, but that 
Yeah, I mean, and it's not even literally sped up, but just it, everything feels like it's happening so fast you're not able to digest all of it. Mm-hmm. And just the, honestly, and I think that's why it appeals to people now so much is it's still entrenched in this modernity. Yeah. But also just the the mise-en-scene of the movie was so detailed and so uh, emblazoned with just uh, vice. Both the interiors and, and, just, and the exteriors. And, yeah. Because like, there's that one great, probably my one of my favorite moments in the movie is just this shot of when it's like the woman that uh, Grandier had was with at the beginning of the movie, Oliver Reed's character, and he kind of tossed her to the side when it turned out she was pregnant. Um, and her father is like yelling after him like, oh, you're you're a, you're a beast or you're a devil or whatever. And him just laughing back at it, whatever. And there's all these like fires everywhere and mm-hmm. people screaming. It literally just feels... And like even a moment like that, which isn't even like the later sequences of the movie where it's literally all out chaos. Like... Mm-hmm both inside and outside. But the whole... It just all feels like a Hieronymus Bosch painting, mm-hmm. like, unlike any movie I've ever seen as far as it just really feels like a true approximation of hell, which is interesting for a movie that is about ostensibly uh, faithful, a faithful town. In quotes, uh, yeah. But that obviously everything that goes along with that is just so... Um, hypocritical or false. Right. Or, and so yeah. obviously the movie was very much, you know... And that's what's so interesting about it too. I said this in the reviews that Oliver Reed's character at first is just seen as such an evil man, but then over time, turns out he's not as you know, evil as right. Others, and yeah. and there's a recognition of that even within himself as it goes on that I think wouldn't be earned if he didn't recognize it over time. Yeah. Because I feel like if the movie were just like, oh, he's bad, but these people are worse, it would just be like, okay, well, so what? You know, but it's just, it is a nihilistic He is still hanging movie. on to this pride and right. righteousness, too. Yeah. yeah, and so I think that that's fine, that sort of nihilism, obviously. But the thing that I like, I do like about it is that he, over time, is like, well, no, I've made these mistakes, but what you're doing is this whole other thing and trying to kill these people based on they're you know being protestant and that whole idea the kind of counter-reformation that was going on at the time but that also i feel like the movie and i don't necessarily have a problem with this but i do feel like the movie is trying to like make him too much of a christ-like figure in its own way yes uh there's that one sequence that's the uh vanessa redgrave's character we haven't even mentioned yet at all but that she's having this like fantasy Dream, yeah. about him, and I didn't mind that because that's all just her fantasy of whatever. I don't think that connects as much. But the literally just the fact of his like burning at the stake is shown as almost like a Golgotha esque mm-hmm. event. Um, there are explicit uh, visuals that make comparisons between right. him and Christ, and yeah. so in that way, I was a little bit turned off by that. But that sequence is just so powerful. Um, I mean, literally, I think the most like vile awful moment in, in in any movie I've seen in a while is when they've got like his baby and the guy's like oh little beaster it's not every day you get to see daddy burn or whatever yeah. it's literally the most like vile awful disgusting moment of a, it's just like wow yeah. like this is just so bad like it's almost so bad all you can do is laugh like it's just yeah. like but I the whole movie was great anyway, but I just found that whole sequence to be just so transcendent of just of a on a just cinematic level. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is what's so great about the movie is that there's few movies like that that have such a bombastic style and their narrative and thematic statements are so 
apt and mm-hmm. long-standing that it kind of is just a movie that has everything and yeah. it's and it's weird and I, to find a movie i don't like think that, it's I necessarily think. going for quote realism i mean no. it is going for this stylized as you said mise-en-scene but also emotional output uh mm-hmm. that's radiating from it but that it has this intensity that um again i think is in keeping with just what the story's about mm-hmm. and the uh, kind of again z- z- like the the perils of zealotry in many ways mm-hmm. and just how awful and horrific that can be and, and you know I don't know if that what this quote genre this is I got I guess like a psychological a drama. historical drama yeah drama but ultimately I think it shares DNA with a horror movie too in a well, roundabout its way score you know? is very much a horror score I think yeah. and uh and then it's also just about the time period itself in a lot of ways and about the Black Death and, and which it had, you know, that had been many, a couple centuries before this time period. Mm-hmm. But that that was still a present reality. And I just feel like it's, like I said, it is a objectively realistic because some of the architecture also that Derek Jarman, who would later be a famous director in his own right, but had created as a, as a set designer was very a lot more of a modernist approach um but that i feel like that's all still very um accurate to the time period in its own way too certainly in keeping if nothing else with the thematics right the aesthetic yeah and it all looks almost like an institution like rather than a nunnery or a a monastery well then vanessa redgrave even has that has that line at one point where she's talking about women who decide to become nuns, I don't know exactly what she says, but something along the lines of like, um, women who are either kind of sexually frustrated or just don't have any kind of relationships or, or, or deformed or deformed and all these yeah. things, uh, that, that those are the people that are nuns in this movie. And, mm-hmm. and the pride and the righteousness, but also the sense of shame that comes with that for some of mm-hmm. those women. Um, Again, it's a pretty powerful movie, and hopefully one that gets some sort of a broader. I feel like it will eventually. I mean, it's just so strange. I mean, and also what's interesting as a footnote to this is the whole just big mess that Warner Brothers is in right now over that HBO Discovery Plus crap, Mm -hmm. where it's like. Who even? That's like the last thing on their list right now is to put out the devil. Although right. it was the those characters from this movie are depicted in the background of Space Jam: yeah. a New Legacy, right. so you know. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and and you know, another thing about the movie this is kind of getting off topic with what we were just talking about, but the movie easily could be like three hours long. Yeah, because I feel like there's a lot of random character import that is kind of implied about random smaller supporting yeah. characters in the movie but i just love how short it actually was and it felt even shorter just mm-hmm. because of the pace and i actually liked that it was a little bit cut a little bit because i know there's versions of it that supposedly were even longer yeah um but i feel like it says enough on its own and to you know to speak speak for itself so but, again we watched yeah. this off uh, levi's vhs is it streaming anywhere in terms of being able i don't to rent think through it Amazon is or... right now um yeah. i know that it like i said it was for a little while um, on Criterion Channel, yeah. the uh, like two-hour version of it. This was like the hour and forty-five minutes, so it's like a little shorter. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me actually look and see. I don't think it is anywhere. Nope, 
none whatsoever. Because they're real, they've been really anal about that. Like they don't, they're not putting it out anywhere. Yeah. And it's been pretty. I'm actually interested. They even put a VHS out of it in the '90s. I guess they just wanted to make a quick buck or something. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know why that ever happened because it was so immediately reviled and vilified by pretty much everybody. And even um, a lot of pretty big establishment critics in mm-hmm. the day was were not a fan of it. Right. Ones you think would cut some slack. You yeah, know, but I don't know. Yeah. I think it was just that that came at a particular time where a lot of those movies were being made. And it's hard to believe that there would be a movie that could upstage Straw Dogs and A Clockwork Orange. Or, and it's different, but that. like, say, Dirty right. Harry, right. too, as being a controversial yeah. movie. But it's like, oh, but you know what? It's funny. It's the best of all those, too, and it goes the furthest yeah. and somehow makes it back and actually makes statements and is like feels like real human beings in a movie. Yeah. It's not like some game or something. Yeah. Um, and... It, and it's not a very funny movie either. Like each of these other movies operate on this certain sense of comedy, especially a Clockwork Orange that, and this satire, an irony. Yeah. Um, and this is no, there's nothing funny about this movie whatsoever. Like other than just <laughs> the characters being so sycophantic to a point where you laugh, but it's not. That's not an intentionally comedic like decision, you right. know. Uh, speaking of sycophants, yeah. Speaking speaking of movies that are just a big laugh, yeah. Uh, Tar, yeah, which we. Recently saw with two other random people, um, yeah, at the uh, AMC here in Hickory at the three forty-five showing on a Friday afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Todd Fields directed three films. Um, in the bedroom was the first one. That was like around two thousand or oh one. Yeah. I can't remember exactly. And then uh, Little Children. And no, neither of which I've seen. You've seen Little Children. Yeah, and I'm a big fan of the Little Children novel from Tom yeah. Parada. Um, but really love the movie, too, and think about the movie a lot. Yeah, In the Bedroom was 2001. Did it have, like, Tom Wilkinson in it or something? Uh, has Sissy Spacek, Tom Wilkinson, Nick Stahl, Marissa Tomei, and William Mopother, who was Tom Cruise's oh, right. cousin. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was in... Uh, Mad Men and Lost uh, and Magnolia, yeah. yeah, a bunch of things. Um, I'm a big fan of Little Children. I think like that kind of it got acclaimed when it came out, but yeah. uh, it had like a lot of you know names in it who were either names then or would be a little bit bigger names like Patrick Wilson, Patrick later, Wilson, Jackie Earl Haley, uh, Kate Winslet, and two Watchmen actors in there randomly. Yeah, uh, yeah. Jennifer Connelly. And um, it's like if you go if you just say what the plot of the movie is or the plot of the novel even too it's like oh kind of suburban middle class ennui problems kind of thing. But one thing I always remember about Little Children and I think it's really well acted, really well written, really well directed. Kate Winslet especially is really great in the movie, as is uh, Patrick Wilson, but. Um, the the voiceover narration is unlike anything I've really ever seen in a movie. Um, it's kind of from this above the narrative, like just this you know unknown narrator voice. Oh, so it's not the characters. Uh, no, it's in not the, the characters in the movie. It's just this. Uh, but like it's, I don't think every movie should do that. But like as far as adapting a novel to the screen, it's one of the closer things I've ever seen as far as what that looks and sounds like and mm. feels like when you read a novel. 
of having it's that not, kind of top-down I'm, I'm, assuring, I'm assuming it's not as showy as something like the Grand Budapest Hotel or no, something no, like no, that, no, no, which no. is very much like, this is a story. No, like, right, it's not it's like more that. Of, yeah, more um, subtle than that, I'm assuming. It's, yeah. But it's like, it feels a little more intimate than, say, the narration in, like, say, maybe like Barry Lyndon is. Barry Lyndon feels like it's coming yeah. from this very, very right. high place. And that place, feels very like, literary, too. And it's, like, very, like, archly literary. But though, this yeah. feels more like um, a voice that's directly above your shoulder. It's not as, it's not in your face, but it's not, like, way too high up like that. So that's just always something I always remember and yeah. I think worthy of study and has probably been. Uh, been written by about by others but so he hasn't made a movie in 16 years and it's not because he hasn't tried to make one i think uh, he's had a bunch of projects that um fell apart for whatever reason but i mean just looking at his work i, I think of him very much as a contemporary of say somebody like james gray who has his own right. new movie out and is actually playing it uh hickory actually we might try to oh, see really that i didn't know that yeah, yeah we gotta do that like this um but He's had various projects that have kind of come and gone. He's actually tried to adapt Blood Meridian, I'm looking here. Really? Uh, uh, huh. Now, that would be interesting to see him do that. Uh, during, let's see. Which everybody's trying uh, to do that. He had a, seems like now. D- tried to adapt a novel called The Creed of Violence, which was set during the Mexican Revolution, which at different times was set to start DiCaprio, Christian Bale, Daniel Craig. A coming-of-age minor league baseball story set in the 1970s Northwest. Adaption of Blood Meridian, mm-hmm. uh, political thriller called As It Happens, co-written by Joan Didion, an adaption of Jesse Walters' novel Beautiful Ruins, and a film about U.S. soldier Bo Bergdahl, uh, who he was, yeah, he had been captured by yeah, I remember his uh, Taliban. Uh, so, and then also even Jonathan Franzen's novel Purity, which is going to be a 20-hour limited series on Showtime. So he is, you know, tried to get a lot of things done. And he said, speaking publicly for the first time in 16 years, Field said, uh, told New York Times in 2022, quote, I set my sights in a very particular way of certain materials. It was probably very tough to get made. So he's acknowledged that. His films, as you can tell, I'm sure from Tar alone, and I've only seen really little children in this, but you can see literally by the list of credits, he's very much trying to be a literary filmmaker. Right. He's very yeah. much interested in literally either adapting literature or making films that feel like literature, which I am all for. Yeah. I feel like not enough people are actually trying to do that, even directors I love. I think that's like Like a very... Like Andrew Dominic we mentioned was somebody who adapts a lot of literature, but doesn't make movies that are very literary. I mean, I feel like the most obvious version of that is the assassination of Jesse James by the cow Robert Ford with its narration. Mm -hmm. Um, That's another example of one that is very like the narration is very uh, literary yeah. sounding, um, which I love about yeah. it. But because um, that's actually one of my favorite things about that movie. Um, but the yeah, but he still makes movies that feel very much like movies, cinematic. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, I Star t- Tar is yeah. cinematic, but not in a very obvious and showy way. I mean, what I really love about the movie, and it's one of my favorites I've seen this year. I think of it in certain terms like Memoria. And That's I think like Memoria, lot, like yeah. it has a very intentional sound design. And most movies yeah. are about sounds in a literal and figurative way. And what I love is about this movie is in a way that even uh, Memoria doesn't quite have. 
is that you feel like there's a knife waiting around the corner at every given time, but the knife oh, well, never comes and down Memoria and stabs anybody. Is so opaque, and we won't too, say it, but yeah. Memoria actually has a revelation in the right. final moments that kind of is a confirmation right. of but things it, you may have yeah, been thinking. The tension but, of that movie is so different. Yeah. Um, and with this, yeah, and there are elements of this that reminded me a lot of Opening Night. We we were talking about the clouds of Seals Maria as well. Uh, but specifically, opening night feel. I mean, it has literally a ghost in the movie itself, or at least an approximation of like one in her own psyche. Um, with this, there are some elements of that and certain things that happen, like the whole sequence, which is never explained whatsoever. Uh, that she follows that Russian uh, cellist into like some where she's supposed to like live, an abandoned, and it's uh, like. Uh, she Complex, never asked yeah. any questions about that because I would want to be like, "Where are you living?" But I guess in she didn't there. want to I, even be embarrassed right, by saying but, that she was following her into yeah, that. Yeah. But there are elements of the movie that engage in that sort of like ambiguity uh, or mystery. Ambiguity, but overall, yeah, like you said, it's not really. Uh, like what I really loved about the movie, something that was interesting is that the movie has this whole kind of false start to it. Yes. Um, where it's like, uh has one kind of shot of like, and I want to talk about this in a little bit because we haven't actually talked about this movie in depth yet. But yeah, ourselves, yeah. The sequences of where somebody is like filming things and they're texting and it's like unclear about who's texting who or what who yes, it is yeah, yeah, on the yeah. other side of the phone. And then have like basically the credits uh, in the beginning. Right, and then there's like this really, really long sequence of credits that have some music over it. And then we jump into like a 10 minute long... Uh, it's basically like a Lincoln Center like uh thing you would watch on YouTube of like somebody going and giving. Well, a I know talk Adam Gottnick is a real New Yorker right. podcaster and, and writer, and yeah. he was interviewing uh, him playing himself interviewing Lydia Tarr. Right. Who there's funny enough been confusion of on Twitter of some people thinking that she was a real person and this is an adaptation of her life yeah, which is not right. true at and that's all. Not, and that is what's so fascinating about the movie is that it is just so slice of life and like very direct for a movie that is about very pretentious things that it's very realistic. And, and it's obviously mean you don't know a lot about the classical musical scene obviously. No. But you could blink or kind of squint and say oh yeah that makes sense this person right. would exist. Yeah, yeah, you know? And I'm sure yeah. they're very much uh Based on people, I mean, yeah. You know, that it, the only aspect of that, that it, the only aspect of the movie I found a tad unrealistic, is just the fact that it kind of treated her like a director or a writer. Um, yeah. I just don't think that, at least in America, anyway. Maybe this is more the case in like Berlin, where she lived or mm -hmm. something. Where that, I'm just no, like, I do not see that as being a celebrity anywhere. Um, well, maybe it's but, like a celebrity within this very New Yorker, like right highbrow yes. elite yeah. world and that, but know? it doesn't matter yeah. I mean I can believe all that fine enough but then it does have all those random elements of weird mystery and ambiguity and intrigue about it about and I didn't even know about, what the like, movie there was, was like a hint of her time in South America that she had right. studied uh, whatever I'm not yeah, sure exactly I don't remember, yeah. the details uh, of but yeah and like part of the movie too is this whole the whole aspect of the movie I knew nothing about whatsoever was that he, uh, or she rather, uh, is basically having this whole Me Too uh, yes. fallout on her whole career. 
that I was not aware of that there's a character named Krista some Thomas or something yeah. that she had uh, who it never shows in the movie whatsoever kills herself and it's that she was this young uh, uh, gonna be a maestro uh, and that she and that it's implied that there was something that kind of happened and, and, and then also uh, that Lydia Tarr frequently anytime she comes up emphasizes that she was just not right she was mentally ill Right. And for, I don't know, me as an audience member for a while, I bought as the yeah. truth uh, and may have been true, but then as the movie unspools itself. And I love a movie that it knows all of its secrets and it's not going to let you in all of them. And you know that the you're just going to get a little bit more as the movie goes on. And um, that, well, she's not maybe telling all the truth about this. And that, well, that and there's a have, hint of that yeah. early on. And yeah. I feel like what the movie's ultimately about is the question of. How and it's something that we've talked a lot about personally, mostly off air. The question of how, with these canceled individuals who have had these personal demons, how can you reconcile that with the great art that they produced? And there's a random amount of and something that I'd never thought about before, but specifically with like uh, conductors mm-hmm. and like. Uh, Which are their own dictatorial figures, un- that un- all similar the to directors in their life, that in their lives, whether it be they mention Mahler or Beethoven or or whoever, all the awful things they did in their personal life. And I wonder honestly what like conductors or orchestra people think of that as this movie is like is that an accurate portrayal of that or like? But like you said, I think it's that kind of dictatorial personality um that people but interestingly that was what the, at the beginning i didn't know really how to react to that because i was kind of like what's this all Are you talking about? about the scene where uh at juilliard where she's yeah. given that yes she's yeah. given this like mm-hmm. talk and right. there's a student there who like doesn't like bach because of things about bach, his personal that was life I was thinking and that. she kind of you know casts aspersions towards him and she's like, well, yeah, you should be able to separate the art from the artist and this and that. And then at first I thought this was a more hypothetical yeah. thing that she engaged in. But in actuality, perhaps it's her preemptively right. defending herself yes. from yes. things she's and, done. And also know? because it, that, and I thought, this is kind of a weird sequence. And I was kind of like, okay, moving yeah. on. Uh, that was all shot very interestingly, too. I mean, a lot of long take, takes. Yeah. yeah and, um, and then it was funny later when they like somebody had filmed it yeah. and re-edited that. It was well, just too that like, it goes to what you were saying earlier, yeah. like that. Oh, this composer got canceled over Twitter. It's right? Like, it's like what? what like, world is right? This? Yeah. You know, like I don't. Um, it's fascinating. But yeah, and then just also the fact that, uh, that you are you. I thought early on because she's a she's a lesbian in the movie, and yeah. that's a very big part of the movie. She's obviously. married and uh, yeah, has um, an adopted right, daughter. Uh, and then there was that sequence where she like went to the school and was like talking to a kid that was bullying her child, and was like uh, in German, of course, because yeah. in Berlin's like, I will get you. And no one will believe you. Like, I'm no an one adult. believe you because I'm an adult. Yeah. <laughs> it's like God watches us all, like, and it's just like what, like, um, but yeah, that. Ultimately, I was wondering early on, I kind of thought, is this just like Todd Field just like putting this random statement in here? Yeah. But thankfully, and th- and and that, and because thankfully he, I think, came to this realization of, 
what what I've come to is it's all so messy. I don't know what the answer is on that about how do we reconcile that because yeah. sometimes I feel like what she said, where it's like yeah, but the art is still the art, but it's like but so much of, but then like she admits. There's all these things of oh this was dedicated to this person or that like their art their life is so much a part of their art yeah um and that also something that I think contradicts all of her beliefs is the great uh, this is probably my one of my favorite scenes in the movies where she goes back to her old house in Staten Island when where she was a kid and she has a video on a VHS of Leonard Bernstein mm-hmm. who was, was her, a mentor, like, mentor to her yeah literally like turning around and talking to the audience and saying literally why I have been thinking the whole movie which is my whole philosophy on art is that he says it's not all about the this thing and that thing and the you technical have to do aspects, all these yeah. little like minutiae it's like it's about how it makes you feel and she cries and to that. A very that, unemotional woman is, right. sees him saying that and cries to and that. And like, you know? what is music but just a way to express feelings that we don't and we're not able to express? I think the same yeah. way about movies most of the time in music and art as well. Novel, and I was yeah. thinking that literally the whole movie. I was like, these people are so ridiculous. Their pretensions and and you know, but also he would somebody who obviously has to to say something like that and to be such a great artist would have to know about all the minutia. <clears throat> but I think that's the thing that she never learned from him and these other people is that it's all about reflecting life and art. And I don't know much about Leonard Bernstein, about what his life and was like. Uh, by the way, that reminds me of this whole movie yeah, that's going to come Cooper's out. Doing, yeah. And we'll learn all about him. And I could literally look that up now. So I'm going. I'm flying blind on this. Yeah, right. But it seemed like Bernstein was probably, in, in comparison to her, far more of a genial figure than she is because as you she says this kind of early on in the movie like calling him a robot or whatever uh and then as the movie goes on she progressively uses that more yeah of saying oh this woke crowd these millennials doing this and you start to realize oh she's one of these types of people of like oh this is really what she believes is this whole kind of the cancel culture is all bs and whatever <clears throat> because at first it seemed like it was more of, no, you need to recognize the art for what it is, that sort of thing. But as it goes on, it becomes a whole other thing. And I think that, like you said, that's what's so great about the movie is it kind of unspools itself and before you. And then at first you're kind of like, why am I being told this? Why is this information important? This. Yeah. And I was trying to pull up. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Okay. This random thing. Um, I was trying to figure out when... <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know what was going on. It was worth it. <laughs> but actually, I was just looking. That Maestro movie's not coming out this year. I thought it was. Oh, I think it previously had okay. been. The pictures, by the way, of Bradley Cooper in that yeah. uh, are like, wow. They yeah. well, like I said, I don't know about Leonard Bernstein. I, probably I would be contradicting myself by that. But I'm just the geniality of him in that in that video on the Well, VHS, you know, that was... Like, um, was such a different whole person if you're, from her. Like, let me, you that's know. also a way to talk yeah. about another thing, too, about this movie is obviously we come from very working-class uh, blue-collar backgrounds. Yeah. 
and this movie i mean the environments that this movie is typically taking place in is so far from our own live experiences um but it was fascinating when she all of a sudden goes back to where her childhood home is that's like oh that looks like a place i would know or i would be in and that she's even in her own she's getting her old old vhs's and then her interact her like single scene interaction with her brother yeah who's very not of the world that she is now a part of in terms of this highbrow high-end artistic scene yeah he's very much clearly a working class guy and he can in two seconds look at her and say well i know you're you're in some moral degradation at this point and then just kind of shrugs her off you know um but that was just an interesting kind of thing and this movie you know early you know is very much a part of a kind of a handful of locations but then at the end is jumping around to a great variety of places and right literally and figuratively um and then again that's the big thing about todd's fields movies what i've seen of this and little children little children's a little more conventional even though i hadn't read the novel by that point and i have since but of again it has some pretty interesting sharp turns you're not quite expecting but come you know this movie like this is again two to three steps ahead of you at every moment and i just like i said love the unspooling nature of it that you're not sure exactly what's going to happen um and is not exactly as shocking i think as one of the trailers for it uh sold it as but it does have moments of like dream sequences that are in there that are like wait what am i watching here what's going on and i always love to see those uh mm-hmm. we can talk a little bit about the ending i don't before, know the extent- before we get to that yeah. though i do want to say i just looked up about leonard bernstein that he was actually a gay man I that was. got I married as a, to a woman um yes yeah. and that he supposedly had these just... sort of yeah but that he had these relationships with some younger men i don't think it was anything from what i was looking i didn't think it was anything that was like predatory necessarily mm-hmm. But that supposedly they had, they were still married, but were like moved out away from each other. But that she got lung cancer, and he actually moved back in with her to take care of her until she died. And after she died, he kind of like sort of didn't lose his mind, but kind of like was really affected by that. And so, so it sounds like that it was similar things, but actually way more of a positive like aspect to that. It sounds like okay, but so that so yeah, that all like I said, kind of touch back on that is a, almost a contradictory statement to her whole life anyway or at yeah. least a, like i said i'm not a scholar on any of this but yeah. uh and another aspect of the movie i want to talk about real quickly before we do move to the ending because i feel like we're going to talk about that the yeah. rest of the time um is that i felt like the best the metaphor of the whole movie was that when they come in to do rating sheets for who they want to like be in this certain position in the orchestra they have literally this like wall and the people sit behind it i feel like that works as a great metaphor for like we need to put the person's life behind the wall and only hear their music Mm -hmm. or whatever yeah but that what happens is there's literally moments where she sees that girl's shoes and it's like she knows instinctively what's going on behind there Mm -hmm. and in that way i feel like field's challenging us to say you can we still need to enjoy and take pleasure in the art but don't don't try to totally just disregard the person's life or the impossibility of being right, able to do right. that and in so ways, yeah that i've i really love that was the eventual statement statement because it challenged me in my own way of thinking oh i kind of at first i was kind of like 
I kind of like that somebody's kind of saying some of these things, even though I still feel kind of weird about it. But then it was like, no, but actually this is what that person's really like. And then it made me think, oh, okay. And I kind of, it was all, it's all a very, it's all a big mess. Yeah. But I like that it admits that eventually. The ending of the movie. Now I looked up about that. It wasn't explicit about where it was, but it said Southeast Asia. I'm assuming it might be like Thailand or Myanmar, maybe. Yeah. Um, but uh, where do we even begin with that? Okay, so she got canceled, basically, and fired from all her posts. Her marriage uh, fell apart. Right. She quite literally went into the, like, orchestra and, like, pushed over... Yeah, she's uh, just, like, Mark, Mark Strong. Strong's character. It was really one of the only other bigger names in the movie, yeah. by the way. Yeah. yeah. That's mostly the Kate Blanchett show, uh, which she's only literally one of the best actresses working, right. so it's not like that's a problem. But, um, so she gets canceled, and then... She ends up, like, we think getting ready to, like, have this big reemergence in Asia. Is right. like, well, she can't be doing anything in America and Europe, but, hey, somebody, somebody somewhere is going to need yeah. some big composer right. to kind of have some big symphony, yeah. right? And before we let the cat out of the bag, I recommend if you haven't seen the movie to go watch it. Mm-hmm. I hate even telling people that there is something at the end because it's honestly a better experience to just go watch it and then be like what the hell is <laughs> yeah. this but because this I mean, well, you mentioned this this is literally like a boat tra- the boat travail ending of its of its era just yeah. like what is this yeah. like it doesn't uh, have that like amount of shock exactly, and also but like that ending yeah. has a bit of a catharsis to it yes it's like right. you kind of get caught up in the absurdity but also the the perverted beauty of it, right. you know what I mean? Yeah. This is just like perverted, like, wait, what is going <laughs> yeah. on here? This and then, is like... And then the after the credits even roll, it's like this like techno music instead yeah, right. of like orchestra. It's just like, what? But yeah, so basically what happens is, is she gets a post is like, I don't even know how to explain it, but it says it on Wikipedia. Read, let me read the Wikipedia page yeah. real quick about but it. But it's basically... Uh, okay, so yeah. sometime later, Lydia conducts an orchestra in Southeast Asia at a massage parlor slash brothel, which we didn't really mention this. Yeah. She's instructed to pick her masseuse from a glass bowl. The escort's staged and framed like her orchestra. One girl looks up in Lydia's eyes, her position the same as Olga's. And, and, and it was like, number five also, which was the uh, symphony she was doing and it, her uh, symphony or her notes had been stolen that was that number yeah. five too so on a yeah. tour of the local wilderness Lydia sits behind a deafening waterfall in silence finally she conducts her new orchestra and the score for the video game series Monster Hunter in front of an audience of cosplayers and just like the way the camera's shooting them and yeah. well I remember too like it shows her walk in right and you're like oh she's going to go to this big right. thing and then like there's these um screens to the side yeah. and it shows these like flags waving i remember being like what is this and then, i started like, laughing yeah. at that point cuz i was like what and, and then and then the camera eventually basically turns around and it shows you all these cosplayers are sitting and there. they're all sitting there and they're not laughing no they're taking it all very <laughs> like, seriously yeah. and it's like something like a I don't remember what all it said, but it's like I compared it to the song Tandem Jump, Jonathan Rich, where it's like, <laughs> you will be scared or whatever. But like, and we were laughing about that, but it's like, it says something like, uh, if you want to back out now, like it's trying to be this whole, like, we're going on an adventure kind of thing, but literally one of the most shocking endings to any movie I've ever seen of just like, wait, what? Because that's what I loved about the movie 
is that the whole time it was operating on this certain level of pretension, sort of, of like, oh, this is about these things, while also engaging in things, like you said, that were of a more literary nature, that were more inherently realistic. Yeah. But then also that it's like, this is what she's doing now. A very unpretentious... Well, we'd already let the air out of the balloon a little bit with seeing the world of her brother and where she come from. And then the... the So, like... The question I have is, and this is by no means a criticism of the movie, it's just like us trying to unpack what this resolution means in reflection of the whole. Is this like meant to play as a grim joke of some sort? Of like the final punchline of, well, look at where all this has gotten her. And like, and are we supposed to like laugh explicitly out loud at this? I think we are. But I'm just I trying to ex- because, yeah. assess the extent to which what Han- what I said Haynes almost like Todd yeah. Haynes, but what Todd you know um, Todd Fields is saying with like is he also saying another thing I thought of is like this is the only really truly accessible way that anything like this makes its way before a popular audience. I think that's in a, part in of a it lower too. low brow way. Yes, is saying like this is and yeah, and that she's compromising herself against her will to do something like this. Right. Because that's the only job she can get now. And that's almost a reflection of the movie itself is recognizing this is like an art house. That's what I mean, too, is like the movie's almost commenting Um, on, well, Todd Field's like sold out and made a Transformers movie. Well, well, and I think that's also him thinking about all the trouble he's had with making movies and that... And that's its own statement of these are the only things that get made right. now, or like art gets diluted into this like thing where people come and they dress up in these Marvel costumes, and it's this big game, yeah. like you know. Um, I think it is all that, but I think it's also just this hilarious, like genuinely hilarious. Like, or, or also, like, it's like him like laughing at us, like not in a condescending way. Right. But think, did you think this was going to be something special? Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. Like, <laughs> or, or to say, no, this is what happens to people like this. Like ultimately, like people who are of this artistic stripe, and then these things happen where they're canceled, and and it's almost a question that we're still living with of what's going to happen to these people. Yeah, right. You know, uh, it's kind of like what's happened with Army Hammer selling like condos in the Cayman Islands or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like a similar thing. It's like, how are these people going to use their talents? What will they now use them for? Now that they're doing this, mm-hmm. we've seen aspects of that before. I mean, and even like r- more recently with uh, Atlanta, there was that great episode of the thing about like reparations. Yeah, and how there was that character that was like had I don't remember what he did, but he did some kind of like work at like a office, yeah. and now he's out working as a waiter mm-hmm. somewhere. And we've seen aspects of these things happen in the last so many years of stuff like that. But this is the biggest version of that that we've seen that I feel like is both. It's funny. It's kind of sad. Is it, I mean, it, is it, are we sad for Lydia Tarr? I'm I am I in mean, the sense of like, that's really what you're doing? Now, I don't feel bad for her because of the things she's done. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, inherently, there is an aspect yeah, to like, just, this person's life is ruined. I mean, and you know. That, and you know like, not that she's necessarily <coughs> acknowledging the things she's done is wrong but no, right. nevertheless the fact that she cries when watching Leonard Bernstein shows that there is some deep humanity yeah. in her mm-hmm. nonetheless right. whether or not she regrets what she's done she probably regrets it more in the sense of what it's cost her as opposed right. to what it cost other people yeah but it's funny it's sad it's profound it's ridiculous it means nothing it means everything it's, it's just 
it's one of those types of endings that you don't get, but every so often of just like, wow, that. Yeah. Like, because there's nothing in the movie leading up to that that would ever lead you to believe that's what that's going to be. Right. Like, and it's just like, right. like I said, it's like a final joke, but right. I, I think it's it's very well done because I don't think it's condescending to us as an audience. Right. But I think it's, again, it's two to three steps ahead of us, and it's like, it's like it's like getting us to think it's this one thing before dropping down. To well, this and it's other also thing, if you, you think know. about the audience that this movie's going to get, it's going to get those New York people, right? Or those, or those four people in Hickory, right? On three, four, but like, show but it's going to get people know. who are the, those Marvel fans aren't going to come see it, or Monster yeah. Hunter fans aren't going to come. Other see Other than it. if they're like, oh wow, I really love that girl in uh, Thor three Ragnarok, like. Let's see yeah. what else she's or doing Or if now. the Monster Hunter fandom is like, we have to see how we're represented, and like goes and waits the whole time for that yeah. or whatever. Maybe they're buying tickets like they did to see Batman tra- the Batman 89 trailer, mm-hmm. but they walk in at the end of Tar. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. Yeah. But I feel like, though, it's almost made for those people in its own way, of that kind of like bourgeoisie, like pretentious people to be, to like put a pie in the face almost of like, yeah, right. no, look at this thing that you don't even know exists, by the way. It's yeah. like, it feels like it's like a lot of different things, which yeah. is the mark of a great movie and a great ending and a great moment of just like, what? Mm-hmm. Just, uh, just wow. Well, we haven't yeah. said much about her, but. Um... I meant this when I said sort of Kate Blanchett to yeah, me yeah. is truly one yeah. of my favorite actresses, and I think she just kills it with this. I think this, and it's another thing too is like when she was given that whole almost monologue at the beginning, which I knew nothing about most of the things they were talking about, uh, but I could, but I just yeah, knew I, yeah. I was in these safe hands, and especially when she was talking about how, you know, the two hands of conducting, and that one right. I does this, but the other, I think the right hand represents time and that she controls time and the illusion that she is there's a back and forth with the audience or with the orchestra but in reality she knows every little bit of where the hand's going and how she's controlling time and i literally felt in that moment in particular just kind of a relief of like uh, the hands that i'm in with field mm-hmm. of like he is he is that person and that he's leading us with to the movie and that, <laughs> and that and that in that yeah. moment in that right. moment while he's directing that and while they're shooting that that again he knows we're yeah. going to monster right. Hunter. You know I mean? <laughs> yeah, just right. like, he yeah. knows that i'm yeah. in control of this and you don't know where we're going but right. i do and so and like there's going to be a whole subplot about the weird family that lives next door and the dog in the weird building and like all these oh, yeah. things what, that, yeah all like, these other asides that, right and then there's the whole thing about yeah like you said the the next door there's the Who woman who's dying there, and then yeah. her like daughter who's coming in and needs her help and then she dies and then they like some of the family members come by after she's dead one day, and it's like, um, what she first thinks they're complimenting the her sounds and the music that whatever, comes yeah. by that comes out of her place, but then they're like, oh, um, we're like trying to sell this, and we don't want your like music coming out of here. And then, so then she's got the uh, accordion. accordion saying whatever she says. I don't remember exactly, but um, yeah, the movie's just filled with all these surprises and then also mysteries too. Yeah. Uh, and then because another- it's implied that all the weird symbols, stuff getting stolen, stuff happening. Because I was going into the movie thinking it's going to be all about her fractured psyche like Black Swan or something. Uh, but ultimately, or, like or, or, opening, night, movie or like yeah. opening night in that way. Yeah. But no, it, it felt like, no, there are people that are walking around doing these things to her. And the, the 
implication is that it's uh, Naomi Merlant's character, or Merlant, however you say her name, yeah. that was in Portrait of a Lady on Fire, that it's implying it's her doing all that and planning to ruin her life all along the way of all these things that have happened. And also implying that early on when there's the phone, when they're talking on the phone, that at first it is uh, her and that uh, girl that kills herself. Then it's implied later that when that's happening with the Russian girl that it's her and the Merlant character that are doing that. Yeah. So it's like these kind of cycles that happen and that are interesting, I think, as far as that. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, there's a lot. But that's never explicitly... And then all, that, and the whole so. is ultimately about someone who is very much in control, losing control over the course mm-hmm. of the narrative in a whole host of ways. And I think it's interesting, too, um, we saw a trailer for the Harvey Weinstein yes. yeah. movie before right. this that's gonna, uh, that is about the New York Times story. Another All the President's Men movie, basically. But yeah, it's fascinating that. to see that, which is like this very like journalistic... This is what happened. Let us tell you this story. I mean, it feels like a Wikipedia page come to life or a New York Times story come to life. And this is very much an artistic, literary version of that thing and putting you in, you know, um, in the perspective of the Weinstein figure themselves. Right. And not that these people need some extra level of empathy, I'm not saying, but that we are kind of getting a glimpse into the psyches of such people and mm-hmm. um, that for, you know, most of their lives, they live their lives with such propriety where they never think there's going to be consequences come their way. And then, oh, wait a minute, there are consequences yeah. coming their way. Mm-hmm. Another thing too, one note to maybe close this on is the extent to which Lydia Tarr feels quote guilt for uh, Krista, whoever the girl yeah. was who was committed suicide, that I feel like early on there is this genuine sense of guilt or uh, she feels about it, but then it very quickly, she buries any sense of guilt that there that's there and it becomes purely about survival mode and right. about, oh, we're going to make sure all the emails are deleted and that her career remains intact. And so, yeah. again, I think it's a very fascinating movie. I mean, it's a long movie. It's two and a half hours, but it, not a moment of it drags to me. I mean, no, yeah. Every moment of it feels pregnant with meaning, which mm-hmm. is, again, I think ultimately that's what a, quote, literary movie is to me, is something that is, quote, preg- every moment's right. pregnant with meaning. And uh, that there's a lot of scenes that seem casual and random, but in the sum total of it at all, every single bit of it was intended. So Yeah. Uh, I'd recommend seeing it whenever you get the chance to. Oh, another thing we didn't say too is like uh, I heard out Baldwin's voice at one oh, point. Oh yeah, like, that was never like officially. I kind of forgot about that too. Yeah, that it was like never officially. He was never even shown, but yeah, that he was in the movie. But so. I was like, Wait, is that out Baldwin? And then you forget about it. Also, uh, there's I mean, we're looking at the Tar Wikipedia page. There's even moments of editing Lydia Tar's Wikipedia page right. in the movie too. Yeah. So check it out if you get the chance. Um, again, we saw it at the AMC in Hickory. I don't know how long it's going to be there. There's honestly part of me that wants to go see it again, but I, I doubt mm-hmm. that's going to happen. But yeah. um, check it out, though. I mean, it's, uh, again, it's it's a shame that Field hasn't been able to make as many movies as we, you know, uh, fans would have liked. But this feels like a movie that, again, as you said, is I feel like a reflection of his own frustrations with the yeah. lack of the amount of movies he's been able to make. But 
We're going to take a brief break, and you're going to hear the trailer here for one of our two movies of the day from 1984, Stranger Than Paradise. I put a spell on you. You sure you don't want a TV dinner? Yes, I'm not hungry. Why is it called TV dinner? Um, I'm supposed to eat it while I watch TV. Television. I know what a TV is. Where does that meat come from? Really? What does that meat come from? I guess it comes from a cow. From a cow? It doesn't even look like meat. Ever stop bugging me, will you? You know, this is where we eat in America. I got my meat, I got my potatoes, I got my vegetables, I got my dessert. I don't even have to wash the dishes. I don't want to take her away. Take Gosenberg, boy. Take Gosenberg, boy. Never tell her that. Never should she go on her. Don't she know that I'm a holy holy god? Never tell her that. What is it that married Akaromötet? Never tell her Gosenberg. The Silhamos. The good for nothing. You son of a bitch. Ow! I don't care if you don't want me. I'm yours right now. I'll put a spell on you. Put a spell on you. We gotta start. Ah, we gotta start. We gotta start now uh, by me just ah, yeah, <laughs> saying how much I hate that song. Uh, so John Lurie's yeah, character not. himself talks about hating the song. I don't. Yeah. I've wondered. I doubt I'm that's sure true he because he know. probably likes it. Yeah. Um, so stranger stop than the paradise. Things you do. <laughs> like stop. You know how long that song is, by the way. It's like ten minutes yeah, long. It or feels something. like it. Uh, yeah, it's. Awful. I don't hate it, by the way. Yeah. I, I I like it in the context in which it's well, used. Well, the, the the single version's only like two minutes twenty five seconds, but I think there's versions of it that are like way longer. But yeah, I don't know. So, Stranger in Paradise from nineteen eighty four. This is the very first Jim Jarmusch movie we've done uh-huh. on here. Levi, tell us what this movie's about. So, Stranger in Paradise is a nineteen eighty four American black and white absurdist deadpan comedy film. Co-written, directed, and co-edited by Jim Jarmusch, starring jazz musician John Lurie, former Sonic Youth drummer turned actor Richard Edson, and Hungarian-born actress and violinist Edzer Balint. So funny, each of them are musicians. It features a minimalist plot 
in which the main character, Willie, is visited by Eva, his cousin from Hungary. Eva stays with him for 10 days before going to Cleveland. Willie and his friend Eddie go to Cleveland to visit her, and the three take a trip to Florida. Uh, it says, of course, the film is shot entirely in single long takes with no standard coverage. So there you go. Um, try to find it. Uh, I've heard this over the years. Uh, there is a description that Jim Jarmusch gave once for what this quote movie is about or what the oh, inspiration of it is. Yeah. I'm trying, well, There was one of the links that said this. I think it was in the critic wire. I'm looking there now. Uh, let's see. I think it was in that. Yeah, here it is. Okay. Uh, Jim Jarmusch uh, famously described uh, as, quote, a neorealistic black comedy in the style of an imaginary Eastern European director obsessed with Ozu and the Honeymooners. And I I remember when I first read that after I'd seen this movie, I was oh, my God, that's exactly what this mm-hmm. movie is. Because um, Jim Jarmusch, in many ways, is a reflection of someone equally obsessed with Ozu and the Honeymooners. Uh, Tokyo Story even gets referenced in this movie as one of the horses are they can bet on basically and he's like in Edson's character is like Tokyo Story like yeah let's do that let's bet on that because it's called Tokyo Story you know female touch yeah yeah <laughs> um so this movie I saw a few years ago and I said this at the end of the last uh, podcast when we were previewing this that um it's been one of my favorite movies I've seen in recent years and in recent years I've really fell in love we've talked about Vim Benders in the past but also Jim Jarmusch that again, the '80s as a film period. We've talked about this before um, at length, and we'll probably dip into it a little bit here now. Is one that has been memorialized by, um, you know, like the Hughes movies, or Amblin's films, or oh, the Ghostbusters, or you know, these very pop '80s right. movies. And I know some of those are good. I mean. E.T., the extraterrestrials, one of the best films ever made, yeah. so far be it for me to say it wasn't. But there's a lot of that stuff that's just crap. That's just like, okay, so what? Uh, okay, it, I mean, and it's many of the things you were saying earlier about the plastic, phony, garbage 80s. I mean, right. there's just so much that's just not good. But then you actually dip into the independent or foreign films of the 80s, and you realize, oh, wait a minute, there actually is more to this decade than meets the eye. Mm-hmm. Because I think, obviously, even the commercial pop cinema of the 70s and 90s on either direction of the 80s are superior. Yeah. To what the, even though the 80s is such this beloved, uh, nostalgic decade right. for a great many people. But again, you see what these independent films from the 80s were, which, as we know, and we've talked about at length, New Hollywood of the 70s, late 60s through the 70s, was this such pronounced... Um, moment of when the independent became mainstream but then kind of faded back into the distance that it feels as though the what i like to in my head call the other 80s of the independent 80s of the time in america and abroad was not as really um thematically and narratively united as the new hollywood directors were right but that in many ways is this persistent flame that continues to burn amidst all the garbage and kind of what has become mainstream cinema in the 80s. 
but that also a movie like this has spurned and become was a huge inspiration to directors that would follow like Spike Lee, like Kevin Smith, like Tarantino, mm-hmm. like um, uh, Steven Soderbergh. Um, what about for you, Stranger Than Paradise and Jim Jarmusch in general? Do you find kind of appealing as an alternative to a lot of this other? these other movies what what has been defined as the 80s movie uh well I, one thing i really like about is it reminds me a lot of the vin vendors movies like i said the the photography of it but uh i think it's just that nature of it is being just so uh rambling and uh open and just an honest depiction of the people uh, I don't know, and it's just a very quick movie. I mean, it moves very fast. It's a short movie, too. It's only 89 minutes. Um, yeah, actually, it was kind of co-produced by a West, West Germany in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, probably through money of that. Uh, but, the yeah, I mean, it kind of literally almost created the this type of movie. Um, yeah. And, I mean, there have been versions of it before. There's a movie that uh, Vincent Canby had mentioned I've always wanted to see, Last Night at the Alamo, which yeah. I know is very beloved. And so you'd seen some of these movies that were about these, like, the basically the black and white 80s movie um, of these uh, independent movies that were intentionally... Sly. Um, sly and, and, and uh, about Rambling. these, like, uh, slice of life real people. Down by Law is an even bigger version of that, I think. It's similar. As far as fitting into those other types of movies... Uh, also, uh, that movie Border Radio, mm-hmm. um, which we didn't really like, but yeah. um, was similar to this. Um, but a lot of these movies that are very much about uh, younger people in the 80s, but like youngish kind of adults in the 80s that didn't really fit into any sort of uh, of the culture war um had no, and, and had no interest. Right, and, and, does, and yeah. just kind of wanted to do what they wanted to do. Um but weren't all that successful at doing so. Um, I think a but, key difference for me between Vendors and Jarmusch, who I both love, is that I feel like Vendors movies start off on the surface in general of being about the hopelessness of the world and the lack or inability to find an answer. But by the end of those movies, the characters themselves and Vendors himself seems as though they find some sense of enlightenment or truth and are changed by that in right. this kind of positive way, or at the very least cathartic way. Because, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I think of a movie like, you know, Alice in the Cities, which is like, you know, starts off as this kind of disillusioned photographer, doesn't know where he's going, and by the end of the movie has found this sense of purpose, even if it's in this loss of a relationship he's fostered, a non-romantic one, kind of this fatherly figure to this girl. Um I feel like Jarmusch's movies, especially early on, and I'm not talking about early on in the movie, but early on in his career, his movies are like, no, like, we're not really looking to find some sort of a purpose. We're just looking to either subsist or survive. Now, I feel like when you get into his later work with its, whether it's like, uh, uh, oh, God, the vampire movie he did. Only Lovers Left, Only Left, Lovers Alive. Left Alive or Patterson I feel like those movies are this, not regret, but kind of this older man's yearning for, I wish I did find the answer, or I wish the answer was right in front of me. And I think a movie like Patterson 
is the ultimate summation of that arc in the sense of the answer is everyday life and right. the, the answer is finding the beauty of everyday life. But a movie like this, it's weird, you know, it's interesting to follow up what we were talking about with Tar's ending with this because, you know, I feel like this movie is about, like, in its end, in its final moments, and its and its final moment is a distillation of everything that came before did the movie all come down to feel like you were being told a long, you know, a long-winded joke, and then the punchline happened, and the, the punchline is about the fact that nothing ever really did happen? Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, it feels like a shaggy dog story in its own way, but something that I thought was funny was in one of the reviews, I think it was the Empire uh, Magazine brief, review, yeah. which are always the worst reviews we always yeah. read. Because um, Empire Magazine is kind of just a joke, flash, anyway. Fast food film uh, kind of thing. But um, they, they wrote something about and learned something about life in the process. I, no, no, like hell, they did. No, I read that. They, and I was like, nobody yeah, learned anything. No, no. That's the whole point of the movie is that no one learned anything. Like, but they don't care either, right? Yeah, they and weren't then, looking to learn anything. So yeah, but like, I mean, yeah, that just totally missed the uh, point yeah, of the movie. I, I agree. Yeah, because I was like, no, the whole point is like that. By the end, they're all alone. Mm-hmm. But they're not all that different or all that affected by that. But either. you know, um, we could just have another one year later title card, yeah. and then oh right. well, we meet each other. Uh, again, you know, the you know? funniest thing in the movie is what we don't see is that he goes on the plane and he's right. looking for, her and is like, "Hey, where's she at?" Hey, and like almost getting in fights with people, mm-hmm. and then it's like that's the stuff we never see. And there's and part of me like, that wondered too, as yeah. I've seen this, like, did they even 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 shoot that stuff? Right. And that they just decided not to. I don't think they no, did. No, they didn't. Uh, yeah. Because first, A, I think this is the biggest thing. They wouldn't have had the money or the funds or the right. resources to do it because this movie was made over several years um, and it was a struggle to get made, I know. Uh, but secondly, like Jarmusch wouldn't even wanted to have wasted time shooting that scene because, again, the whole joke is that final moment of Edson waiting by the car and then looks up and sees the plane going over and we're not even totally sure he's in there right it's implied yeah but we never know that for a fact that's Mm -hmm. what's so kind of funny about it is like if he would have waited a little while he might would have came out and he just left him there but he just totally left right so you got these three people who were together are now totally in different places there's this question of will they see each other again or do they even care but strangely what's funny is they all have money yeah yeah, but like you know, uh, d- assuming that Edson and Lurie both split the money up, mm-hmm. they all have money to get where they want to go. So almost, it's a hopeful ending in its own way, well, of saying, mm-hmm. "Oh well, now they all have the ability to do what they want to do apart from each other because they've all got money through these weird circumstances." So this is ultimately this takes me to the the question of this movie, and this is also this could be applied to the question of Jarmusch's whole career output but I think specifically yeah. this movie. Um, it's been described, again, often as a black comedy or as a dark comedy or a comedy mm-hmm. or whatever. And I think it is, ultimately. But I find this movie to be very um, subtly and mutedly sad. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this might reveal more about my own philosophies and religious or spiritual right. ideas, I, uh, I presume. But... Are these people happy? What is their M.O.? What is their life, any of these people? I think Eddie's pretty happy. Eddie seems happy. 
Uh, From the very beginning of the movie, he walks in. He's just happy to be and, anywhere. And yeah. he was like looking at her like, no, oh, she looks kind of cute. Like, oh, yeah. look at that. Like, and he literally does that the whole movie, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, my favorite moment in the movie is that part at the end where they like see the note that she left and they've got all the money. Mm-hmm. And Lurie's like getting some stuff together. And he's like, uh, get your stuff or whatever. And he's like, Oh, I'm ready to go. Yeah. It's just kind of like, that's just his whole attitude. It's just like, I'll go wherever, do whatever. Obviously, Lurie's character, and we haven't actually talked about the like the actors much yet, but mainly because I feel like there's there's so few of them. We'll kind of talk about them as we go, but with Lurie's character, Willie, I feel like he's the saddest character in the movie. Yeah. Because he's somebody that moved to America about a decade before this, and tried to just totally forget everything about Hungary. He just didn't want to go back, didn't want to be around his family. He knew he had this aunt in Cleveland, but he lives in New York. And he's like, oh, I eat TV dinners and watch Forbidden Planet and football and smoke cigarettes, and that's it. And yeah, I guess I've got a vacuum cleaner. Yeah. (laughs) You know. Right. And so... In that way, I feel like he's the sad, and I feel like that's a good reflection of John. You know a lot more about John Lurie, and are more of a John Lurie fan than I am. I feel like that's very much a reflection of his whole philosophy in general. Well, um, this is a good chance too to talk about John Lurie in relation to Jim Jarmusch because it's a fraught relationship to say the least. John Lurie wrote a really good book uh, last year. I about forgot the name of it, but it was his like kind of memoir called "The History of Bones," which is. Um, about his life and his uh, a lot about his musical career and also his interest in being more known as a musician, but that he, these collaborations he had in the 80s, especially with Jim Jarmusch, who he knew in the 70s and 80s, um, yeah. that he kind of started to resent being known as an actor and that his, again, that, Jarmusch and Vendor's friendship even got him the part he had in Paris, Texas, which is very, very small and minimal. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that kind of... He, he became known as kind of this big indie cult figure in the 80s in large part due to that when he really wanted to be more known as a musician as in, within the Lounge Lizards, who's... Again, I I was not really familiar with them at all before I got into the work of Jarmusch and Friend, oh, this guy John Lurie, oh, he's in this band Lounge Lizards, and I mm-hmm. that's really a band I love a lot now and really love their music, but um, all comes from John Lurie. But Lurie himself in his book um, talks a lot about that he helped co-conceive this movie, that he was a big active role and part of this movie, and to a lesser extent, Down by Law, which he was in the next movie, which that has, of course, the one of the all-time greatest film trios in Lurie, yeah. Tom Waits, of yeah, course. Yeah, that's and my also personal Roberto favorite Benini. of his movies. Uh, yeah. And I think, yeah. you know, that that's a more well-made and refined movie than this. Um, but I slightly prefer this. But I love them both. And I really feel as though, and I say this as a pretty big Jim Jarmusch fan, I feel as though Jim Jarmusch's movies have not really overall had the wit and kind of the specific casual intensity that they had that he did with the period that he was working with Lurie. And that goes even to Mystery Train, which um, Lurie's involvement with was lesser than it was with 
certainly this and even down by law, but um, they have a very strained relationship, and he talks about a lot in his book um, that he feels as though he's been pushed aside over the years uh, and that he had some pretty serious health problems and that Jarmusch yeah. was not there. Cancer, and then he's had Lyme's disease yeah, for a that, long time. Um, yeah. Jarmusch never seemed all that interested in helping him out or knowing or knowing him during those periods, which is a Jarmusch fan I was disappointed to read. Yeah. But um, it's a really good book and it got all kinds of really great anecdotes and stories that if you're interested in this scene at all or these uh, creatives, I would recommend reading yeah. at some point. But um, this feels Willie is not the most demanding role for Lurie, but in many ways it's a great one for him to take on because it is kind of this um he's somebody who was on a professional level actually fairly ambitious in a lot of the things he wanted to do but you know i think what's interesting about him playing this role is that it acts as a good avatar for him and his politics and his beliefs and his worldview which is stay the hell away from me let me be who i want to be right and his kind of being put upon by uh his cousin being there and that He's almost embarrassed by her, but then when he realizes that she's capable of thievery like he is, that he's, oh, yeah, you're all right. You can hang around for a little while. And almost this annoyance that he has to entertain or put up with her because all he wants to do is sit around, smoke, watch TV, eat TV dinners, go gamble. Um, and I don't know if he's exactly happy with that, but he's certainly content enough. But I feel as though this younger relative coming to be you know be around him almost makes him at the least bit and this is not the not once said out loud but i feel like is in the narrative of these characters he feels a sense of guilt and or in like lack of contentment by her presence there because it is it is making him a making him aware by her presence as a younger person there from where he's from of what he once was and right. now what he is you know and i feel like not one word of that is said out loud, but I think that's what's fascinating about Jarmusch's style is that it's it gives enough of those ingredients there for you to yeah. acknowledge and reckon with, you know. Um, as far as from Eva's perspective, she's coming to America. I think she has these big expectations of what America's going to be and then this reality that, oh, America's just sitting in front of the TV, eating TV dinners smoking cigarettes, waiting for the world and life to pass you by. And that realization of like, well, this might not be great. I'm going to go try frozen Cleveland out. And it turns out that's not all that great. And then, you know, very famous line, switching gears ever so slightly, Richard Edson says in the movie, probably the most iconic lines in the movie is, you know, you wherever you go, you're in the same place, basically. And, uh... Lurie just kind of immediately pushing that side and said, yeah, no kidding, Eddie, and just, just yeah. whatever, and, like, doesn't even care about that. Um, but that those lines, I think, really ring true for what Jarmusch's vision of America is in this movie, whether it be from immigrants or from people who have been here for a while or people who have been lifelong native-born Americans is this sense of, this certain flattening of American culture that had been happening in the 80s and had certainly yeah. been going on before that. And again, Jarmusch has never been explicitly a political filmmaker, uh, or but uh, there are political statements ever so subtly in his movies. I feel like um, the zombie movie he made a few years ago, oh, uh, don't die. that has the most explicitly political 
movie he's probably made. Almost lazily. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but is, you know. That has one of the all-time great endings to a movie of like, mm-hmm. what an effed up world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there you go. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, but I've really just, you know, again, I, I think a lot about, I feel like this is, a, like I said, a sad movie in the sense of, these characters not really going anywhere with their lives, but again, yet again, like, do they want to go anywhere? Do they yeah. have any ambition to go anywhere? Should they want to go anywhere, right? And and again, being a relatively simple story and narrative, but there's this sense of, for what's it for? Right. And again, all these years later, nearly 40 years removed from this, this is not does not fit in very squarely with the vision of and the history of what the quote '80s was, yeah. unless you're looking at it in a more um, critical right. way or critical yeah. standpoint. Yeah, because I mean, it, it's I think it's something that everybody talks about. It's almost so just obvious to bring up, but I really do love that line of you know, it's kind of funny. You're someplace new. And everything looks just the same. And also the way he says it in his voice, I think, is just so yeah. funny. But it's funny, but it's also just one of the most honest and sad things I've ever heard anybody say is just like, because that's around the time where they go to see Lake Erie, and yeah. it's just like... And they nothing. go and they look, yeah. and it's like, okay. yeah. And I mean, I feel and, like this movie wouldn't have played this point home in particular if it wouldn't have been in black and white. And right. I think, I mean, that adds a... A flattening in a way of uh, the world that we're seeing, right. you know, and, and then we do get different yeah. landscapes. We get what New York looks like. We get what Cleveland looks like. And then we get what Florida looks like. But nevertheless, there is this visual flattening that happens. And they literally, there's a they scene where they go and look at the beach and the waves are coming and going. But it's just like, okay, we came to Florida. Yeah, yeah, because they were like, oh, I want to go somewhere hot, and then yeah. it's like, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, it's as miserable as it is there as it is being cold. I mean, you know, so, yeah, I think that's all I said, a very kind of subtle, obviously, political statement of, like, about how, oh, everything's so comfortable, but who cares, you know? Right. Um, I guess we can talk about Esther Belint a little bit as Eva. Um, I think she, now, she, of course, was later also in um, The Dead Don't Die as well, Um I'm looking to see if she was in much else. She was in, she's a musician. One of my favorite titles, The Linguini Incident, she was also in. I mean, um, it is interesting that... She was in that movie Shadows and Fog, which I haven't seen. Yeah, the Woody Allen movie. Trees Lounge, the Bashimi movie I always want to see. Um, Bashimi, of course, worked with uh, Jarmusch, too. It's interesting that he chose three musicians to be in this, too, because a lot's been written about Jarmusch's either use of music, and this movie uses music pretty interestingly. Again, uh... I put a spell on you, but then also Lurie's own score, which he yeah. uh, contributed to. Um, so I just think it's interesting that he put three musicians kind of in the uh, in that, you know. Right. Says that she also worked with Biscott, who was uh, had a very intriguing relationship with Lurie himself. I know too, because mm-hmm. um, they were friends and enemies in some ways, and. Um, Again, the book goes in depth and detail on that. Yeah. But he was a huge artist of the 80s. And yeah. to the point now, and this speaks to how the 80s has been garbageified, the good parts of it, even. Uh, his artwork has even started to appear. I've seen kids at school wear hoodies and 
stuff with his artwork. And I'm like, I've, I remember this is a year or so ago, I saw a kid who had a hoodie on a, a Biscott art on it. And I was like, oh, like, are you a fan of his work or whatever? I've seen some of it myself. And they're like, who's that? And they don't even know who it is. It's like a lot of kids now wearing Nirvana shirts. And it's like, do you even know what this is? Or is it just a fashion statement for yeah. you? A lot of kids you see uh, wearing like Rolling Stone shirts too. You know, different, obviously more mainstream. But um, again, that's what happens with any cultural artifact. After a certain point, it gets appropriated and becomes more of a fashion statement than a... Uh, you know, the genuine work of art in its own right. But Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, there's Richard Edson as Eddie, who I always loved seeing in literally anything. He was um, famously in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Right. Uh, he took the car for what a spin. What kind of place do you think this is? Yeah. yeah. Uh, of course, I also know him in his own way. He was barely in Sonic Youth, at the beginning, which is my favorite band. Mm-hmm. Uh was in Sonic Youth towards the very beginning of their career. Uh, they famously had like a bunch of drummers early on, and then settled on Steve Shelley. Yeah, well, settled as in I mean he's a great yeah. drummer, but uh, he was one of my favorite things in Three from Hell, uh, which came out just a few years ago. But mm-hmm. yeah, um, yeah, he's been in a lot of different things. Of course, he's really his probably his best performance overall. I think is in Do the Right Thing. Um, I think he's really yeah, great he's in really that. great in that. Yeah, um, I think that's Turo's kind of brother. a role that he really gets a lot to do and And I feel like I mean he's good in this but I feel like it's like oh hey this guy throw him in there and he's again his he does make a great foil for Lurie's you know quiet simmering anger you know yeah but I I think he he you know he grew as an actor even between that and uh but this and do the right thing who is in that but yeah he's also in black dynamite I forgot as Dino, it says. I wasn't aware of that. <laughs> uh, a movie called Columbus Day with Val Kilmer. You look at that. Yeah. Like, Starsky and Hutch. Female touch. Um, but, yeah. Um, yeah, and they're kind of the main people. There aren't, I mean, there's a bunch of other people that are just kind of in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rockets Red Glare, famously. <laughs> there's um, some great stories about Rockets Red Glare in the Lurie book, by the right. way. He was an insane individual, to say the yeah. very least. Um. So what else are we? You know, well, here? I feel see. like I would kind of I hinted on what this movie's saying in a roundabout yeah. way earlier. Just the idea that, again, like you kind of want to feel sad and sorry for these characters, but then again, part of the grim joke of the movie is they don't seem to be all that broken up right. about, at least not out loud. So, um, I think it's that sense of irony was um, something that was new for American independent film at that particular moment, and that's why John Bush's yeah. work has been. So influential, as I've said, I know a lot of younger directors like um, Steven Soderbergh and Spike Lee, especially, were very inspired by him and have you know said at various times that oh wow his career kind of gave me hope that there's something because again you think about what independent film was I mean a lot of those new Hollywood people had either faded away or were you know somebody like Scorsese I mean I say this is a huge fan of The Color of Money but it's like oh he was at a point where he was going to maybe do a sequel to, say, The Hustler. You know what I mean? I mean, they had either leveled up or were passed away or not making movies by that point. And and so American film cinema needed, like, this shot in the arm independently that Jarmusch came along and offered up. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah, and it's just, uh, I think it was inspiring to a lot of people to make a movie that was so bare 
Mm-hmm. Um, but so funny and so developed in these more subtle ways. And I mean, so. this movie even sets the standard and the prototype of what a quote Sundance movie is: is having right. these quirky characters. You put them in on the road, and they get into and hijinks ensue, and right. just a sense of humor. I mean, I, this really is set a standard for uh, established a prototype that a lot of movies have followed ever since. Um, yeah, you know. And again, I'm a, I'm in general just as I've said already, a huge fan of Jarmusch. Uh, I love Down by Law a lot as well, which mm-hmm. was his next film after this. Permanent Vacation, which is a movie, basically his student film this, he made yeah. before this. This gun is my, ed- or Le- excuse legi- me, my legislative gun. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't even seen that movie, but you showed me that part. But, um, yeah. That that movie's actually on the Criterion for right. uh, this. But uh, I know you're a big fan of Dead Man, I think, as well. And yeah, I, that's a movie yeah. I like quite and a Mystery bit. Mystery Train, and I, I like a lot. I, Patterson, I, I really yeah, love. I really, really loved Mystery Train the first time I saw it, but I haven't seen it in so long that overall that might technically be my favorite of his, yeah. but I'd need to see it again. But um, Down by Law, I really love, though, because it kind of has all the folks you want in it as far as Lurie. Uh, Tom Waits and uh, Roberto Benigni and uh, just those three is a weird combination is great it's kind of like a different version of this yeah. um, but they're even less connected um, obviously yeah and I think it's I think it's interesting too that we're going to see this with Dumb and Dumber that has more of as we said last time a MacGuffin yeah. of like oh we got to do this thing this is just like Oh, we don't got nothing going on. We actually, the MacGuffin is almost a reverse thing. It's like, oh, we got some money. How are we going to spend the money? Right. And it's just like, well, where are we going to go to spend the money? Oh, uh, well, we're in the, we're in the, you know, we're in the we're black in the now. Marimo, yeah, like, but yeah, like, but let's go like show it off to uh, Eva and it's just like show her yeah. like what all we've got now. And it's like, all right, well, let's go to Florida and like how much? And it's always like, how much money do we got? Like. And yeah. in a roundabout way, as an audience, that's like there's like a a ticking clock or time bomb to that of like when are we going to run out of it or what circumstances are going right. to cause us to run out of it. There's yeah. no like sense of let's start a family, let's start a home, let's just like you know invest it wisely or any of that kind of other crap. It's just like what do we need to like yeah. get by for now, and it, then when yeah. that's out, it like, reminds me a we, lot of the. Uh, Cormac McCarthy novel Suchery in the mm-hmm, sense that it's just about yeah. people that are just like living day to day, literally. And, it's and you like, know, it's people that are like right now, but I don't know. I what mean, I'm like do temporarily, like, temperamentally, you know. as far as our lifestyles, we live pretty conservatively in terms of knowing we need a budget yeah. and we got to have these things. And so that's one thing I also just like about the genre of road movies, as far as the catharsis of them, is just put everything in the car and go. Yeah. And again, I. I don't really want to, frankly, do that in my life, but like just the fantasy of oh, the what if, and yeah. these movies. Well, scratch that's a very that itch, Antonioni you know? idea. Mm-hmm. I mean, that got its way into Mad Men, obviously, yeah. as being part of that too. And so, those are ideas that are kind of eternal. I mean, on the road, of course, that's a very beat idea. We didn't really mention um, Antonioni, but that inevitably has some yeah. sort of a influence on something like this right. too. You know, um, European directors. Yeah, and and. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson movies too, kind of yeah. like especially with the Master, I feel like it's a version of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think that was just such an infectious idea, particularly with this movie that it you had seen that a little bit with Vendors movies, but like you kind of said with Vendors movies, it always ends up with you have something that you bring back with you, like a usually in the form of a person mm-hmm. or a connection is made. That's not this one's literally about the lack of connection or the lack of communication by the end of it. 
and that I think is just such a funny, but also to everyone sort of alluring idea of I'm just gonna get lost. Like, yeah, let's get know, lost as the, right. as the song says. I mean, as David Lynch once said, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, Chet Baker he did get lost. Uh, yeah. You know, he's very <laughs> and, wo- very worse kind. But I think also it's yeah. just it's um it's a statement on what the kind of underground cool hipsterism of the '80s was as a movie yeah. like this in terms of. Yeah, it's all kind of all lost and wasted, but who cares anyways, man? Right. But like in a way that's not as quite as dark as cynical as that might sound, yeah. but nonetheless, that's the where they were. You know? Right. So that's Stranger Than Paradise. We're gonna take a break, and up next, you're gonna hear the trailer for our next movie, Dumb and Dumb. What are we gonna do? I got an idea. Go faster! Dumb, a person lacking mental power. What's her last name? I'll look it up. Starts with an S. Swappy. No. Swap. Swappy. Nah. Maybe it's on the briefcase. Look on the... Oh, yeah! It's right here. Samsonite. I was way off. Idiot. An adult mentally inferior to a child of three. Skis, huh? That's right. The years? Uh-huh. Both of them? Cool. Stupid. A person below normal intelligence. Hey. Wanna hear the most annoying sound in the world? If they each had half a brain, they'd still only have half a brain. Oh look, frost. Jim Carrey. All that plane! Sir, you, you can't go in there! It's okay! I'm the limo driver! Woo! Jeff Daniels. Oh, geez, look at the butt on that. Yeah. He must work out. Dumb and dumber. For these guys, every day is a no-brainer. And welcome back, idiot. Yeah. <laughs> As that trailer says, I've always had a huge affinity for that trailer because it was used to be on the Mask VHS, right. uh, and I always I grew up watching that a lot. That's a movie, by the way. We might have mentioned this a while back. Doesn't hold up all that well, as it turns out. Um, no, which was interesting because I read the uh, Roger Ebert review of Dumb and Dumber, and he was talking about how much he preferred that to this, which I think is just so laughable. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't get well, that. We but. can talk about jump ahead a little bit with this, but yeah. you know, a lot of the reviews for this movie were like, I mean, if you're prepared to put up with some pretty stupid, dumb things, then it's better than you might think it is. Like over and over again, well, it's I must like, like apologize. And this for is liking you it can anyway. tell this story better than me, but it's kind of like you always told me about two friends of yours that were big fans of this movie. Also, mm-hmm. said they saw the trailer. You went to the movies with them, something else, and they saw the trailer for this. And they were like, or the Dumb and Dumber 2, mm-hmm. T.O. Yeah. And we're like, and that, and you've seen that movie. I've heard it's awful. It's not good. But they, they were like, it just looks so dumb. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> it's kind of always been that way. Like, Well, I, I think that's a difficult question to say because there are plenty of like 
comedies I could see myself thinking are really dumb or stupid, and I know they're not good, but I find myself apologizing for laughing at it. This is a movie to me that there's no apologies necessary. It's a really yeah. funny, pretty great yeah. comedy. It's honestly, maybe actually, my favorite comedy. Yeah. Uh, because I really, you know, really love like some other 90s comedies, like probably way up there for me also would be The Big Lebowski, but there's such a cult and the fandom behind The Big Lebowski that becomes so kind of pretentious and labored after a point. And that is a comedy and, movie, but it being by the Coen brothers, it has a certain cachet yes. to it that is very highbrow. Um, Speaking of directing brothers, uh, the Farleys, the Farleys. Mm-hmm. Now, Peter Farley was the only credited director for this one, but they clearly had a relationship and they made several movies together. Now, I believe Peter Farley's kind of off doing his own thing with Green Book and whatnot. I'm not sure. And that, uh, the greatest beer run ever. He's gonna oh, that's now. right. He did yeah. do that too, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, which is cra- it's crazy that, you know, you can now say, I guess, Academy Award winner Peter Farley. And, of course, it's for Green Book. Of course, it couldn't be for this or there's something about Mary that, the, right. you know, the really great things he did that, right. you know, could win an Oscar for. Yeah. But here we are, Dumb and Dumber. Uh as we've said, and you know, we'll try not to make this just a quote fest because we yeah. can just talk, go through a whole rundown of this whole movie and all the ways it makes us laugh. This is honestly too. I mean, I grew up watching this a decent amount in the nineties, not as much as The Mask, but I called it on TV a bunch of times too. And it's just one of those movies that already within, and you can even look at the poster here; it's clearly parodying Forrest Gump, yeah, which came out earlier that year in '94. But and also, this was a Christmas movie of '94, which is a dimension yeah. that I don't usually well, I mean, think Lloyd about Christmas. or know. Lloyd Christmas himself, um, it, it wasn't Harry Thanksgiving, uh, no, his buddy, but right, um, done, Harry done, he's done, Harry done. <laughs> so, Levi, tell us a little bit about what Dumb and Dumber is ostensibly about. Dumb and Dumber is a 1994 American buddy comedy film directed by Peter Farrelly and co- who co-wrote screenplay with Bobby Farrelly and Bennett Yellen. It's the first installment in the Dumb and Dumber franchise. <laughs> Which is actually yeah, a thing. Like, right, because there's the prequel. Dumb and Harry Dumber when Harry met Lloyd. Right, and then there's but, the animated series, which... I don't even know what we want to say about that. Uh, I didn't never that was a random time, too, in the late 80s, early 90s, where these random animated series made out of stuff like... Beetlejuice was probably the one that kind of stuck around the longest, but then even um, The Mask had an animated series, and then yeah. this. Um, and then, of course, Dumb and Dumber 2, the movie that came out uh, about 10 years ago now-ish, right. or less. Uh, but it stars Jim Carrey and Jeff Daniels, and by the way, there are some things in this summary that I'm going to poke holes in a little bit that I don't <laughs> okay. know if I believe, but it tells the story of Lloyd Christmas and Harry Dunn, two dumb but well-meaning friends from Providence, Rhode Island, who set out on a cross-country trip to Aspen, Colorado, to return a briefcase full of money to its owner, thinking it was abandoned as a mistake that was actually left as a ransom. Lauren Holly, Karen Duffy, Mike Starr, Charles Rocket, and Terry Charlie Rocket, would you? Mm-hmm. And Terry Gar play supporting roles. I don't know that they are well-meaning, especially not Lloyd, because I think that Harry is, actually. And, and actually, as dumb as Harry is... Is actually somewhat and uh, definitely the smarter one of the two. Did you notice but, one of the reviews said that he was the dumber one? No, I think I it didn't said that. One that. of the reviews oh, said that. I don't okay. remember, and I was like, no, clearly Lloyd. I think he is. He's but, so much dumber. Um, you know, this would get into talking a little bit about the cuts of this movie too, because I think this actually makes a little bit of a difference. Is primarily I've seen the television cut, even though I've seen the Blu-ray now so many times. But I prefer the rate the the edited version. 
personally. Yeah, well, what well, I think almost now with home video, I'm not totally sure about this, but I feel like almost now with home video that the unrated is now like the canonical yes. version or edition. And I'm like, no. And the biggest things, of course, there are some like visual aspects and elements that are certainly maybe push it more into the unrated category. But there are these little asides or certain scenes that go on a little longer in this the unrated yeah. cut of like specifically Lloyd being mean to Harry. Yeah. You notice that or it's like yes. some things in the hotel when there is just them in that in that like heart shaped yeah. uh, uh, No, literally tub and everything that is cut out it is, I'm like, there's a reason no, for yeah. it. Yeah. Like even that moment there's a moment Real, real quickly. I know we're kind of going off track here, but there's that moment where uh, Mike Starr kills the bird. Yes, and it cuts back to him doing more of that. I always felt like that was a really great transition. Yeah, from him like come here to like then them outside the building. I always thought that was really great, and then that's just ruined by that version of it. And it's just which like, speaks to yeah, there are a lot of reasons why that you know these things, things happen. are cut it's I mean, like what martin scorsese always said he doesn't have director's cuts of his movies because he's like it doesn't really matter movies are are eventually the you know that's what was meant to happen ultimately i think he's like, uh, you know, uh i think that something like wolf of wall street originally had a four to five hour cut but he always knew from the beginning that was just the you know that yeah. was the yeah because we really the big block of, of granite he yeah. knew that like well we're going to cut things out of it so right. that's the, the yeah. movie is ultimately that right but anyway you know all that's just to say that the movie's ultimately like I said about these two idiots that but but part of the thing though i think is the lecherousness of lloyd is so clear to where he's clearly not well-meaning exactly that's what i think is actually so interesting about his character is that it seems like a very basic, like, I just want to, I'm in love with this woman, but it's like, it goes beyond stupidity into another level of just, like, obsession. And, or intentional, and, you know, like, um, sabotage right. he does, even with and, Harry, who I think he does care about and love, yeah. but this is the first time that he's, <laughs> in, in the world that we've seen of this, like, has, a, like, a feeling or a relationship beyond his friendship with Harry, you know what I mean, right. with uh, yeah, and Mary. so all that's just to say that I, yeah, well-meaning. I don't, I don't think so. But, I, but all yeah. I mean is, is that that this unrated cut, I feel like, actually make means makes that even more yeah, false. Yeah, right. Like, you know. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, um, yeah. I'm, I'm just like I'm just giggling, just thinking about everything in this movie. But uh, and I think one of the yeah. brilliant things about this movie is the simplicity of the plot. Yeah, I mean, yeah. is that it has this MacGuffin quality to it, but that ultimately it's like okay. We're off to the races. We're off and running. You pretty quickly, I think the first act does a great job of establishing who these characters are, setting them on a mission, you know, getting them out there. And I think this is the first movie that they really made. The, the Fairleys. The Fairleys. Yes, and I think, I think so. it's very impressive that they already have a pretty clear understanding of how to drive the plot forward. Right. Um, yeah. And, and it's a movie that ha we talked about this, I think, a little bit last week. It has a lot of different locations. Mm -hmm. And it's weird because, like, obviously, and that's natural at being a road movie. Mm -hmm. But you have obviously Providence right at the beginning of the movie. Which the cl the more and, you watch this movie and the closer you pay attention, as you're like, what the hell is going on in this uh, city, in this world yeah, right. city? Yeah, like, specifically, and they're a, a, you know homeless men pissing against walls and. <laughs> And then even and, when they're like, when they're coming back after their horrible days at work and they're walking in, like you're paying attention to all the stuff going on and you're like, what, do you, what is all this? Right. Like, you know, and, this is crazy. And, 
and uh, hey, watch it, that guy. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, all the different people that like, and Nugaborn, Mrs. Nugaborn, yeah, like yeah. whatever the hell all that is. Yeah. Um. And so, and of course the guy that uh, is at the uh, the gate at mm-hmm. the airport that's like smiling as he's taking down. The name, right, right, it's just right. like, Which what is up with that about. guy? Yeah. And that he like knows what's gonna happen to him, and he's like, well, I'm just gonna let it happen. Like, <laughs> yeah, <you know>? right. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, fell off the jetway again, as uh, yeah. Lloyd says later. So I guess he's just, you know, we expect you know what that. really chaffed my eye. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, like I said, we're just gonna be quoting all the time. Do you want to go through the cast first before we really sure. get into the rest? Okay, so Jim Carrey is Lloyd Christmas. A goofy chip tooth slacker who has been fired from several jobs. He has a crush on Mary Swanson, unaware that she is already married. That's actually not something that is officially revealed in the movie until the very end, although it's kind of implied because of the kidnapping. Yeah. Um But that's never even explicitly said in the scenes with Charlie Rocket and Terry Gar and that other random guy, uh I don't even know who his name is. Uh, Joe Baker, maybe? Uh I don't know. Um uh, not Joe Don. Yeah. Uh, but that whole, they kind of imply, oh, like, Mary, you, blah, 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 this, yeah. that it is her husband. But that's never officially, actually, like, certain mm-hmm. until, the, I feel like, until the very end. Um, but, yeah, it's also funny, like, and this goes into all the detail of the movie, because a lot of people compared this to Airplane. But I don't think there's as many sight gags no. as there are just like no, gags right. in the movie. Yeah. But one man, random detail that is just so funny in the movie is the the his chip tooth, obviously. Yeah, right. Which in dumb dumber and dumberer. Yeah. When Harry met Lloyd, is all explained or whatever, yeah. and it's just like which is something that Jim that, Carrey like, actually had and that had normally had covered up. I never, and, and I then, always forget that. And, right. that he, and they were like, "Oh, let's just do that because yeah. it's funny." Yeah. Um, but, what, I don't know if we've really talked about Jim Carrey much on here before. I've got a feeling we have. I think we have. Point. I'm going to assume we have and keep it brief. I, yeah. But, I mean, yeah. And clearly one of the comedic minds of, you know, great comedic minds of his generation. Uh, I would really recommend if you haven't seen the documentary um, about the making of Man on uh, the Moon. Jim and Andy. Jim and Andy. Uh, the, great, or the Great Beyond. Yeah, yeah, which I love that documentary more yeah. so even the Man on the Moon, which I also like. But... Um, he clearly had just such a meteoric rise to fame pretty quickly, even though he had been in things before uh, in the 90s. And I think, you know, if you look at his 94 was in particular his highlight year because he had this at the end of the year, but then even before that, he had Ace Ventura, he had The Mask. I mean, I think you can pretty clearly look at those three roles and performances, and they all mean something a little different. But this is the best character he actually yeah, got oh, to yeah. play out of those yeah. three because I mean, the other two are so exaggerated. Now in the mask, he does have the go between between Stanley Ipkiss and the mask, and there is some difference there. Right. But as far as like again, what we were saying earlier that he gets to be really funny and goofy and stupid, but then have this kind of vindictive streak to him, and um, you know that cold heartedness to him. I think that's um. You know, something yeah. that he doesn't get enough credit for in this movie, I think. <laughs> yeah. But and out of those three is the best performance. I mean, he's role really he not got. that far from just being the Riddler a year later, as far as that kind of like evilness. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a lot more subdued and it's kind of cloaked in this like just stupidity. Yeah. Um but I mean, like I said, I think about that every time I watch the movies, just what a totally evil individual he is and that ultimately, um that 
Harry just kind of follows him along with whatever. And it's strange because ultimately that makes the movie, when you really think about it, feel kind of uneven and a little weird. But I actually respect that about the movie more is that... And the, they get equal screen time, I feel like, too. I don't think it's anything like that. but yeah. Exactly. But it, it does feel like Lloyd is more of like the main character yes. even though that well he's and, the one who has the initial connection right. to mary yeah. obviously and spurs uh to mary and then spurs harry into getting involved right. in it i mean even the the fact that harry and mary are the other two implies that he has a choice to make in some regard as far as who's more important to him and yeah. when the going gets tough when charles rocket has the gun pointed at you in the okay hotel room, kill him i mean and yeah. i mean that's kind of meant more as a joke i think yeah. but like right. he actually feels genuine uh, wait can i have a vegetarian meal yeah. like, <laughs> but like yeah. he feels i, I mean yeah. i i don't want to overemphasize lloyd as a an right. evil i think he's yeah. complicated which makes him more interesting than just being evil exactly but I mean, I think, you know, him and Harry do have its own, and a lot of bro comedies or bromances have this, again, that you feel more invested in that than you do a romance exactly in the movie. But, um, you know, this would be a chance for us to just talk a little bit about uh, Jim Carrey's Fire Marshal Bill. Yeah. And, uh, and let me show you something. Let me show you something. You know, it's just hilarious. Uh, But, uh, I mean... And him on in living color, uh, just in general. You know, and I've said versions of this about Steve Carell before, I know to you. But I kind of just wish when Jim Carrey was really just willing to be funny. And yeah. real, and I think he he resents that, I think, in a lot of ways. He's just like, I don't want to be the clown all the time. I want to be able to do what I want to do. Well, especially do, that know? he went so, through such a hard time in the late 90s, particularly around the time of Man on the Moon, even before that Truman Show, and then after that... Uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotlight, which is Mind. a great movie, um, I think. Yeah, I think he's end. just gone through so much uh, internal trauma. Yeah, that I understand that he would yeah. want to admit. Oh, especially after what happened to Robin Williams and all these other, you know, comics that this has happened. Uh, these things have happened to. Yeah, that I understand why he would feel that way to do that. But then now what he does, and this is a light criticism of him, I, and I'm a, I love Jim Carrey. I, yeah. I really think he is truly. And we didn't really mention Liar Liar. I, right, I, that movie's right. also hilarious. He's in the nineties yeah. a little later um, than this. But that now it's like, well, even when he was doing something like Kick Ass Two, it was like, okay, that's like some. Ver- but now he's doing like Sonic. Yeah, and it's like. Which I'm sorry, yeah. I'm not going to watch. Right, and, and I like, feel bad because I'm like Jim Carrey's yeah. trying and he's in something. But I don't. I'm not watching. Right. That. But it's like I feel like he, he's wanting to take himself seriously, but then he's doing crap like that, and it's kind of just like strange. Maybe I he, mean he's just in a strange place in his whole career in general now, anyway, because he's kind of wanting to be a painter. Yeah. Too, and so he had a girlfriend he was very close to yeah. too, who died of like right. a drug overdose, and yeah. there's been also allegations that he got her addicted to those and so there's some more fraught things going on right and so he's a very complicated individual but yeah i do and i don't say that to say he doesn't have any more to give because i feel like he would uh well he might even uh, he's even said uh that he wants to like work like he was asked a while back like who would you want to work with and he's like well not many names but the safty brothers are people i'd love to work with imagine him him. in a safty movie i mean that would be honestly like if they would have met and i don't mean to speak too ill of Adam Sandler. Can you imagine him and Uncut Gems instead? 
It's mm-hmm. like what that would be, maybe. Yeah. Like a version of that. I don't know. Well, they are now, really... that would take away the whole Jewishness aspect of that movie, which I think is such it's a part yeah. of that character. So I don't think, I think overall the right decision was made. But something like that. Well, who know. knows? Like, I know that Adam Sandler is getting ready to be in the next Safety Brothers movie, which is about the world of card collecting or whatever. And who knows? He could be like a antagonist. Yeah. Or an, can you imagine Adam Sandler and Jim Carrey even being in a movie together, which he's they like, have not. Have you even seen this card? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, like, and he's really great in the cable guy, too, I want to yes, mention. What's yeah. it. So, like, that, and that's what I was going to say. Is I mean, like, you look that, at a lot of the best comedies of the 90s, yeah. he's there. Yeah, in front and center. I mean, and even now we're not as big of fans of Ace Ventura. No, but it did undeniably has. I excuse mean, me, I like to yeah. add. You yeah. look at it, like, you know, it's just, it has moments in it that I do right. think about. But. but yeah, I think that um, that and that's what I was gonna say is that like what you said is I I think he has more that he can give and things he could do. But I do wish like oh I wish he just were doing what he were himself again of what he because there's nobody funnier. Really, when he's you, on, right. he's nobody's right. going to touch that. Yeah. And I think Robin Williams, you know, and we're not necessarily the no, biggest outright fans of Robin but, Williams. Yeah, but I think that Robin Williams was able to like blend comedy and drama like few people I've ever seen. I mean, a movie like The Fisher King is one of my favorite movies, and I think he that is just such a performance and series of choices that I just think a lot of. Yeah, and he's just brilliant in that movie. And I think, as you said, ever since Robin Williams. Not only his his career, but his untimely and unfortunate passing. That maybe there's more awareness and fear now about some of these comedians and you know the sad clown archetype right. or the funny man gone awry archetype. That um, I wish nothing but the best for Jim Carrey, and hopefully you know he can get back to doing more things. And but again, it's like some people, and this isn't to say he needs to go away, but certain people just have a cultural time and place, and they'll always have that. Yeah. So you think of these 90s comedies he was in, he'll always have that era and moment that he was a, he was this untouchable superstar right. within that Right, and I mean, particularly, movie. two of my favorite movies are this and Batman Forever, and just... And I think he like, makes a great Riddler. I he mean, does, I, you know. and that's just to say, like, he's not somebody I think a whole lot about anymore just because he's not in as many things and and I just honestly haven't seen as many of his other movies, random stuff he's made but just I don't know where I'd be without those two movies like just as a fan of movies like two movies that aren't that well beloved either by like cinephile people you're talking about more, Dumb and Dumber and Batman and, Forever right that would be more like uh, I don't know about that but you know, obviously that's just to say that those are two movies that made me love watching movies and so um, and I love both of them still genuinely like and I think they're good mm-hmm. so I don't have any problem with saying that and, but, and again, uh, I said it earlier, I really think a lot of Eternal Sunshine. I think yeah, that was the best good. example of him doing yeah. something a little more dramatic, but yet, yeah. nonetheless, offbeat. Yeah, because the Truman Show and... I, and I like that movie fine enough, but I think it's slightly overrated. That, you know. I think, and and it's... <laughs> Peter Weir has made so many better movies yeah. than that, too. It's amazing, but... And and also, the Man man on the Moon. Same thing with Milos Forman. He's made way better movies than that, too. Yeah, and people, Amadeus, so, yeah. So, and One Flew of the Cuckoo's yeah. Nest, and so... Yeah, uh, and even other stuff he's made that I haven't even seen that I know would be better, like Fireman's Ball and other stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, that yeah, it just to me those movies just don't or feel like kind of like him trying to do that already. Yeah, but weren't as good as things that came before or after. So 
Yeah, but I feel like this is yeah really his big role to me. I feel well like. again. I think it's the yeah. perfect role because it yeah. allows him to be funny, but the character is also slightly more complicated than I think most people really understand it to be. Right. But and it's weird to say this about someone who's the co lead. I think the secret weapon of this movie is Jeff Daniels yeah. as Harry And we've Dunn. talked about Jeff Daniels before when we talked about Gettysburg. Um, yeah. We didn't watch, we didn't do a do podcast yeah. on that, but we talked about it. That would have been uh, one of our longer episodes. Right, but, uh, and I love him in that, too. Yes. I love him in everything. I mean, he's great, especially Something Wild, which I think he has, he's and, in a class of his yeah. own in terms of, like, he's one of those actors or actresses that anything they're in, they are better because he is in it instantly. That's why I've he always wanted. I know quality. the newsroom is kind of reviled yeah. by a lot of people, but I've always had hope for that show just because he's in it. I'm like, it can't be all that bad because Jeff Daniels leads. And my the good show. friend, uh, like, coworker Sean Miller, actually yeah. saw. Uh, uh, oh gosh, uh, uh, the uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. To Kill a Mockingbird yeah. on stage, Tim's Atticus Finch, yeah. and him and he said he was amazing in right. that. I know. Yeah. So no, I mean. Uh, He's he in really speed is speed also around this oh, time yeah, period. Course, yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. Let me even look at just a list here. I mean, uh, there's a bunch of movies he's been in I haven't seen. Obviously, Purple Rose of Cairo, totally great in that, really yeah. great in that. Terms of Endearment, I forgot. Mm-hmm. Uh, something Wild we mentioned. I really love him in Something Wild in particular. Yeah. I think it's really great. Um, Squid and the Whale. Yeah. He's pretty good in that. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, that has that whole mo- we laugh yeah. because we're thinking of the this moment where he's in an argument. And then "Hey You" by Pink Floyd starts playing, and yeah. it's like him looking, and that yeah. music is just funny. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, he was in Steve Jobs, of course. Uh, he was in Looper, also. I remember Godless. I remember he was good on Godless. Yeah. You know, obviously, this is well. Have we ever talked about that? On the here? Cookie Country. Yeah. Moment. So like, there was one. We were watching Godless, and I remember I was sitting eating, which are by the way, like. Uh, Random food talk here, real quickly. Yeah. The best cookies that you can mm. buy on the market are the Keebler soft batch yes. chocolate chip cookies. Literally, nothing even comes close to the point where I'm like, why do we even make the hard cookie? I don't get it. Yeah, well, I I, we're, I'm a fan of the softer um, cookies. But anyway, myself. we were eating, I was eating that while we were watching it. And he's like, this is gutless country. Yeah. And I was like, this is cookie yeah. country. I don't remember how that got started, but then we said that literally the rest of the time we were watching it. Yeah. Um. But yeah, then it talks about some theater he's been in. But yeah, this is a really random role for him, though. It's kind of against type because normally he has done some kind of lightly comedic roles like Purple Rose of Cairo. Or something wild. Or something wild. And as he, and like I said, even has done like action performances like Speed. But like... Normally, he's more of a dramatic. Well, actor. even in Purple Rose of Cairo and um, something wild, those were both kind of like straight men slash foil types, where it was like characters who didn't really understand the absurdity of the situations they're in. Right. This is more explicitly a comedic performance, and I know too. And I mentioned this last week. He's told the story a bunch of times how grateful he is and how close he is with Jim Carrey because Jim Carrey actually fought for him to be cast in this because Jim Carrey said, I need someone who's a legitimate actor who can play that role and can act as a foil for me to act stupid and ridiculous right. and he'd be a little bit of a foil, which again, is not to say Harry is himself all that smart. Yeah, because I think but, it was originally going to be know, like Nicolas Cage in that role and I'm like, that wouldn't have been no, right. yeah. no, that just doesn't make sense. Now, Nicolas Cage in the Fairly Brothers movie, I would like to see that, but not right. that wouldn't have made sense. He could have been in Kingpin or something. Yeah. Like, take uh, the Bill Murray role in that or Woody Harrelson. 
Yeah. Yeah, either one. I don't know. Well, Bill Murray, I don't know. Yeah. These days. Um, but uh we'll no, say he, Bill Murray talked for another day. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, as the late Leslie Jordan would have said, Peloton. <laughs> right, yeah. But R. I. P. Leslie Jordan, by the way. Um, but uh no, I think he's really great. It describes him as, yeah, Lloyd's ditzy and airheaded best friend and roommate. He has a crush on Mary too, but is also unaware that Mary has a husband. Yeah, so Towards the end of the movie, he has a crush on Mary. Mm-hmm. Um, what do we and, think of like the whole situation where he's told? Well, Lloyd wants him to go talk to Mary about and and you know saying, "Oh, there's Lloyd over there, and he knows you." And then he gets like called into eventually this like date with Mary. That Terry Gar's and, like, uh, "Oh, forget about your friend for one day." What are you saying? Do we think that like that's quote yeah. a bad friend move from Harry to do, or that he's, he's just so, caught in this? He is so he's so stupid. He, do, uh, he, he doesn't just, even totally understand what's going he's on. He's literally so stupid. Yeah. Uh, like, and no, and then I think he does realize that. But then uh, we must remember that towards the end, when he comes in, and obviously part of this is part of the plan about he know they know what's going on, but that he was going to be like, oh. We need to have a serious chat or mm-hmm. whatever. Now, part of that's all part of him going in there with the, the bulletproof vest on, yeah. and and no, stay. Yeah. Like, you know. <laughs> um, but no, nah, I mean, I think it's partly that. Yeah, he it's a bad friend move, but also he's just so stupid. But it's not nearly right. as no vindictive. Well, or by the way, they literally as... came all the way across the country, which he thought was stupid in the first place to do. Yeah, right. He was like. No, 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 Lloyd, no. I say we stay here, we hunt for jobs till we have enough money for the worm store. <laughs> um, That's one of the downtime moments of the right. movie, which is already yeah. early on. Another one of my favorites is where they walk different directions, and then within 30 seconds, like... Harry! He, like, he, hey! He, he traded in the sheepdog for the uh, moped. What even is that? Yeah, moped, I guess. Yeah. It was like... And then yeah, he's like, oh, I think that's one it. of the funniest random things in the movie is like how quickly that downtime <laughs> is totally resolved, and it's just like, oh yeah, whatever. Like, so we have at least um, three downtimes. We have right. a very early on one at the end of the first act. Then we have that, and then we have post like, red right hand. Oh, we're gonna get to the soundtrack later, by yeah, the way. Yeah. But like, um, yeah, but yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those things where he's just so stupid that he'll just go along with whatever, and then he finds himself in the situation. And it's just like, no, yeah, I'm attracted to her too, and yeah, whatever. And so, well, I wonder uh, how Jeff Daniels feels that like when people are making acting reels of all his great roles and performances, and of course he has plenty of those. That one of those signature moments of his career will be him on the toilet. Like, what that must feel like. As by an the actor, way, I like, wanted to read what the Wikipedia <laughs> summary says about that. It says in retaliation. Lloyd pranks Harry by serving him a coffee laced with a potent dose of laxative, causing Harry to spontaneously defecate in a broken toilet at Mary's house. I love also is it defecate. Yeah. Uh, like, I mean, everybody talks about that scene. It's probably the most famous scene in the movie, ultimately, other than the mock. Yeah. Ing. Yeah. yeah. Bird. Yeah. 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 <laughs> But then obviously, like, that's the most famous scene in the movie is him taking a crap. Now, I've heard uh, but, Jeff Daniels say before that Clint Eastwood found him at a party like a year or two after this came out and said, that scene where you're on the old toilet is like the funniest yeah. thing I've ever well, seen. Well, it says he was in like that. that movie Blood Work yeah. randomly, so maybe that's how yeah. he like got him that job <laughs> off of that. I don't, which is so random, that, you know, to think that. Yeah, he was doing some Blood Work. He would have been like, 
Right, you know, um, if I ever told my Clint, story, Clint Eastwood story on here, I think you might have. But about, go ahead and tell okay, it again. so a friend of mine. This is random because we're not technically talking about Clint Eastwood, but a friend of mine uh, who I won't name just in case yeah. this would ever be a problem with this. Unless story. they signed an NDA, right? I don't know. <laughs> uh, was working on, I think it was fifteen seventeen to Paris. I'm pretty sure, and. Uh, and there was a there was some scene they were filming in a bar or something, and Clint Eastwood got on top of the bar so he could like talk to everybody to direct the scene or whatever. And the like ceiling or the top of the bar was too low, and he didn't recognize that. Yeah. And he like hit his head. And this would be funnier if I were in person to show you what it yeah. looked like. But he went this like oh like that <laughs> and like touched the top of his head. Yeah. And said everybody was like, oh, going in to help him. But my friend was like hiding, trying not to laugh that it was just so kind of funny. Like, but yeah, um, random thing. But, but yeah, that like, just the hilarity of that, that it's just in the the toilet thing, not the Clint Eastwood thing. Hopefully he's still, hopefully his brain still operates. Yeah. Um, The doctor is about to operate, (laughs) um, as the mask would say. Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean that really is just one of the funniest things. But like, it's another level of acting that has to go into yeah. doing that. I mean, it's it's so it's so funny. But I think, and there's that whole debate about like comedian actor thing, where sometimes I do think of oh no, and that's why somebody like Carrie or Carell would say no, I'm an actor now. Mm-hmm. Like you know, but Daniels is in a weird position where he's given a comedic performance, but he is an actor. Like he is an actor, yeah, primarily known as more. And so that's actor. what I think is so impressive, and why that role works so well, and why you said like he is a secret weapon is because all the effort you have to put into actually being funny, but also like all the facial expressions and like there's another level of acting that which has I'm to go sure into that, somebody right? like him probably really reveled and loved in doing right. a role like this yeah. in terms of just. Like, you know, the, just to cut loose and be more fun, be the funny man yeah. in, in a lot of ways. Extra, we'll go through the rest of these actors a little more quick. gloves. <laughs> Quicker. You had these extra gloves this whole time. I'm going to kill you. <laughs> what? I'm going to kill you. <laughs> I mean, my favorite line. That's a low-key downtime, but then they, yeah. they uh, My favorite line in the whole movie is, I'm going to throw this D curse <laughs> right into that D pond. <laughs> um. Lauren Holly is Mary Swanson. God bless this actress. Uh, a she wealthy, was briefly married to Jim trouble Carey. Er, troubled heiress whose husband Bobby has been kidnapped. I haven't really seen her in anything else. She's, in, like uh, she's in a lot of TV. Adventures, Adventures of Ford Fairlane. I remember. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and uh, Dragon, the Bruce Lee story as Linda Lee. Um, Linda Lee. Um, Any given Sunday. The Chum Scrubber. Okay. What? Meet Generation RX. Wow. Um, Godfather of Green Bay. Uh, Yeah, I mean, she hasn't been in a lot of stuff. Black Coat's Daughter, that was kind of a movie some years ago, I remember. Uh, The Cuban. Is that with... uh, Lee Gossett Jr.? Lee Gossett Jr., yeah. Uh, Yeah, and then a a bunch of just random TV stuff. But yeah, Fantasy Island, random. Mm -hmm. Uh... Yeah, just a bunch of TV. Let's yeah. see if there's anything more recently. Hang on, that I might have seen. Nope. Okay. No. Uh, but yeah, I mean, she is in and out of the movie. Obviously, somebody who's just like there's a normal, like, well, normal as in like wealthy, but just right. like average, whatever. Kind that of Harry or Lloyd falls all right. in love with, and you know, uh, 
drives him to the point of, oh, we need to get this briefcase back to her. And obviously, you know, the revelation at the end that she has a husband is kind of the final nail to drop in the yeah. coffin, which, again, is said several times, even. Or in implied. Scenes. Yeah, I don't think it's explicitly said, but it is very much implied a lot. Well, there is that scene, I guess, with Charlie Rock when yeah. Charlie Rock first comes in the movie. It's so kind of obvious that's what they're talking about. That, yeah. yeah, but yeah, they don't know that. But yeah, yeah, um, she's good. I mean, she's only in so much of it. I mean, her acting in particular during the fantasy sequence um, <laughs> is commendable. Yeah, which we'll probably talk about more in detail here in a little while. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she's good. Uh, Karen Duffy is J.P. Shea, a henchwoman of Nicholas Andre. <laughs> Come on, let me do them. Let me do both of them. You don't even have to worry about it. Like, <laughs> How could you whack a bird with a cork? Like, uh, I'm not sure what else she's been in. Let's see. Um, I can't think of anything offhand. Malcolm X. She was in, supposedly. Action, oh, I think like, I barely do last remember Last action hero. Yeah. Uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox? Really? Who was she in that? Linda Otter voice, obviously. Okay. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I mean, she's only in a little bit of it, but it's funny, she lasts longer than Mike Starr, yeah. who is Joe Mental Mentalino, <laughs> a henchman for Nicholas Andre. He has a stomach ulcer and regularly takes medication for it. Oh, that's like, a good... Yeah. That's yeah, one of my favorite jokes in the movie is... When they see them outside the door coming to look for him. Yeah. And it, they're like, Did you pay the gas bill? <laughs> what you've done? I say, We, we bail. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then, like, the, of course, so I said, He's like, Maybe I'll trash the place, send him a little message. And she's like, I don't think it'd be much of a message. The mm. guy has worms in his living room. <laughs> like, but yeah, and then they're like, Sorry, gas man. Went to Aspen. Of course, Aspen spelled with an I. Yeah. And um, then a smile. Right. Smiling and he's face. like, how the hell do they know I got gas? Like, <laughs> 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 but my obviously, Mike Starr is in like everything. He's in Goodfellas, Goodfellas Black Dynamite. Uh, I think he was originally on The Young and the Restless, uh, actually. Um, Radio Days. Um, the Natural... New York Stories, Uncle Buck. He was in, look at all the movies he was in 1989 alone. Born mm-hmm. on Fourth of July, Blue Steel, uh, that, uh, Catherine Bigelow. Yeah. Um, the Bodyguard. Son of the Pink Panther. Uh, wait, whoa, wait a minute. Wait, Roberto Benigni played the Pink Panther? Yeah, I forgot that. I never knew or that. he played Clouseau. Look at, okay, these are all the movies he was in 1994. Cabin Boy. The Hudsucker Proxy, On Deadly Ground, Blown Away, mm-hmm. Baby's Day Out, Trial by Jury, Ed Wood, and Dumb and Dumber. Wow. Like, Banner and I and I, the, he's pretty memorable in most of those, too, yeah. that I've seen anyway. Um, a Pyromaniac's Love Story. <laughs> <laughs> William Baldwin, John Leguizamo. Well, I've never heard of that. James and the Giant Peach. Yeah. Anyway, he's been in a lot of stuff. Uh, but yeah, he's really great. And it, wait, there was a Gloria remake, really, with Sharon Stone, Sidney okay. Lumet. What? I had no idea. Of that. <laughs> I, that. I had no idea. George C. Scott. I had no idea. Uh, but yeah, and they both work for Charlie Rocket's character, uh, Nicholas Andre, a greedy, wealthy resident of Aspen, Colorado, in the mastermind behind Bobby. So Kidnapping. he's the main villain of the movie. Uh, 
Charlie Rocket, thoughts? Well, I've not seen a lot of him. He used to be on SNL. Right, uh, notably. Notably. And yeah. he, what he, he, I think he said that F, F-bomb. Yeah. He dropped the F-bomb on live TV. I think he dropped TV. the F-bomb and got fired. Um, and then he later committed suicide yeah. uh, randomly. Um, he's also known as Charlie Hamburger, which always makes me <laughs> okay. laugh. His real name was Charles Adams Clavery, or Clavery, I don't know how you say that. He's from Maine originally. Um, he, yeah, basically committed suicide in October of 2005. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I know that, yeah, he had gotten, he was on that show Moonlighting, too. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, basically what happened was, I'm reading here, it was something, yeah, something that, it was like a Dallas who shot JR thing, and he said, I'd like to know who effing did it or whatever, and I guess it was like, yeah, you're yeah. fired. Or but we always quote but, uh, the uh, audition of um, Phil Hartman. Phil Hartman. Where he's like, I wouldn't say F live on the air. I wouldn't want to be the next Charlie Rocket, would you? Yeah. Like, yeah. And which, then it turned out he had his, his own, own awful death. Yeah. But. but yeah, he's a good villain, I think, actually. Uh, uh, then uh, again, uh, like I think he's mostly playing it straight. But right. then, as you said, there are moments like, I want, want the vegetarian meal, you yeah. know. And, and like I love that scene where Mike Starr's on the phone in in the like phone booth, which by the way has that one guy who's like yeah. who was on Ned's Declassified and uh, has been in a bunch of random. He's stuff. been on Seinfeld. Yeah, uh, and that he's like freaking out because he's it's like he can't have been on the phone that long. Yeah, right. Who would he need to call other than him? Like yeah. I, unless he's been. Making all his other calls mm-hmm. or something, I don't know. Uh, but that, yeah, he's like, and he's talking on the phone. So swing in this ass, like, yeah. and, and I want to know who they are and what they're doing with it. Like, yeah. you know, it's like intentionally kind of over the top comedic. But yeah, he's a good villain, I think, kind of randomly in there. Mm-hmm. Terry Gar is Helen Swanson, Mary's stepmother, and then also. The guy I was thinking of earlier, Hank Brandt, is Carl Swanson, Mary's father. I don't think I've ever seen I mean, seen they're pretty before. perfunctory, yeah. whatever. It's kind of like, oh, love Terry Gar and all these things she's been in, but then she's barely in it. Could have used more of her. Mm-hmm. I don't know what in what context. Yeah, but. she's pretty good. Victoria Rowell as Beth Jordan, credited as Athletic Beauty. Didn't know that. FBI I saw agent. that in the credits when we were watching. I was like, yeah. "What is what part yeah. was that? An FBI agent masquerading as a talkative young woman moving to Aspen to get away from her boyfriend. He came home drunk and wanted to fix the sink. I couldn't believe she it. was pretty. She's pretty funny. Yeah. Obviously, it turns out she's an FBI agent. Uh, under it's probably one of my favorite kind of scenes in the movie is her and Harry talking at the gas pump. And, yeah, and he's, and and obviously that one of my favorite jokes in the movie is like, Are "Those your skis? Yeah, both of them. Yeah, yeah, cool." <laughs> and and then obviously where he's like getting her number and he like had lit the match and it's like got all, I got the gas yeah. all over his leg and but God says like, give me the D number <laughs> yeah she's like alright if you're gonna be pushy forget about it yeah <laughs> but yeah uh, and then one of my other favorite line readings is later in the movie where he's like what if he shot me in the face she's like that was a risk we were willing to take <laughs> uh, but yeah she's she's really good she's not in the movie a whole lot but I love that yeah those scenes where she's like hanging out at the bar yeah and Lloyd's there waiting on Mary who never shows up and like her just aggravating him the whole time but, yeah. yeah Cam Neely is Seabass a hot tempered trucker who gets into frequent confrontations with Lloyd and Harry on their way to Aspen first encounters at a Pennsylvania diner 
a lot of Pennsylvania specifically like yeah. was happening like that. Sea bass is you know obviously this random trucker basically that they get into. What a, the hell do you want? A tussle one with. Of my he, line well, I love too. Like one of my favorite moments in all of Jeff Daniels' acting career is the look he gives when he throws the salt <laughs> shaker. Just total Who's oblivious. The dead man that hit me with a salt but shaker. Just the look yeah. of just total nothingness right. on his face. Just yeah. like when he throws it. Just like. <laughs> uh, and yeah. then obviously Seabass pops up again, surprise, shockingly in the in the stall. I was getting ready to the apparently. Music, yeah. like he's gonna rape. Yeah. Lloyd. Well, it's that this movie kind of obviously has kind of a homophobia problem as well as uh, there's something about Mary with randomly Harlan Williams, who's in this movie as the motorcycle police officer, as that like serial killer. In mm-hmm. there's something about Mary. Yeah. One th- one great thing about that whole sequence though is the whole scene that happens with the cops where he's like, "How often have you done this?" And he's like, "Oh, a bunch of times." I don't. Yeah, know. and you know, obviously like, Ben Stiller's talking about right. hitchhiking, but they think right. he's talking about killing people, right, which and, is funny. Yeah, but yeah, Sea Bass is really great. I think in the main sequence, yeah. I like the shock factor of yeah, the right. second sequence, but it's kind of weird about like. I feel like the edited version is a better version of that. Like the the longer uncensored version is a little bit too much. I think of like some of that stuff. Um, he well, but, it should also be said that um, he uh, I believe he pops up in the post credit scene. Yeah, because we really needed that. of Dumb and Dumber Two. Right. Uh, so there's that. Yeah, but you know. Uh, but yeah, I mean he's funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe Baker is Bernard. He's the guy that's the the uh, concierge or whatever that's like always helping them out all the time. Yeah, uh, not a whole lot to say about him. But Harlan Williams, we mentioned about the motorcycle police officer. That's a pretty random sequence where it's like, oh, he has to pee real bad after they had like run out and all that money. By the way, we forgot to mention one of our favorite jokes in the movie too is when they go up to tell that woman that sea bass is going to pay for their food, which yeah, of course yeah, they're yeah. lying about. She's reading a book that says, of course you're angry. Like, like, this is random. Because she's just like sitting there like whatever. Seems like know? a very like, relatively nice, calm woman. Yeah, and it's like, of course that. you're angry. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <coughs> uh, but yeah, Harlan Williams is the guy. Been boozing, have you? Sucking down grandpa's old cough medicine? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Let me hear you, pumpkin pie hair cutted freak. Like, <laughs> Uh, Brad Lockerman is Bobby Swanson, Mary's kidnapped husband. He's barely in the movie. Literally one scene. Nothing. Yeah. Lynn Shay is uh, Mrs. Margie Nugaborn, referred to as Harry by Harry as Mrs. Noogie Burger, a dog owner and client of Harry's. And she's like but, freaking out because of the he had total disregard for how the dogs were going to look. Basically, how and they were treated on the way to the dog show they were being taken to or whatever. Right. And yeah. yeah. Um. Brady Blum is Billy, a blind and young boy who uses a wheelchair to whom Lloyd sold some of his and Harry's belongings, including Harry's decapitated parakeet. He appears on a current affair when Harold and Lloyd arrive in Aspen. What do we think of this? This would be a time to talk about this with other Fairly Brother movies is uh, their use of disabled or um, mentally challenged people in their movies. Do we feel like he's being made fun of because of his blindness? explicitly in this well sort of i mean and this is a more complicated one i think than w earl brown in there's something about mary because i think that's actually overall a relatively positive yeah uh there's been a lot of debate and talk about that over the years and they've said and they 
have even they you know they have friends who are mentally challenged mm-hmm. that they put in specifically something right. about Mary and and also with that movie too specifically it's clear the whole movie that Ben Stiller is always really nice to him yeah. and always including him in whatever's going on to the point where it's like no this is really how someone should treat this person and it's clear that Matt Dillon's character is just insane Total is psycho. not doing that right. Yeah. Um, but with this, it's a little bit murkier to the point where I do kind of wonder about that. Yeah, I think um, the criticisms that are fair in this. Yeah, I don't know. I do think it is really funny though. Just the image of a dead bird. With like the, <laughs> what, the thing that's funny about it to me is not so much making fun of the kid as it is anybody who would see that right, clearly dead yeah. and not step in and say something about it. They, they would all just and then be later like, on oh, when yeah. he's on that current affair episode that. Mary seeing it on TV. I thought he was really quiet. She said, who are these sick people? And then immediately the doorbell rings right. and Harry or Lloyd's yeah. there. You That's know. such a random throwback of like those shows like A Current Affair and Hard Copy and those shows that no one even talks Inside about Inside Edition's now. the closest right. thing that it would yeah. even But those are always a little more serious. Kind of like 48 Hours or that type of thing. Like, yeah. But it's just a different yeah kind of show. Uh, but yeah, that whole set. I always thought that as a kid, I always thought that kid was kind of... Uh, that he was uh, look like oh gosh what's his name that kid that's in secondhand lines and uh, AIA oh, um, oh uh, his name just escaped me like literally I had it and then I forgot um, everybody's screaming it at us right now I'm um, real close on uh, Haley Joel Osment. yeah yeah Haley Joel in, uh, Six yeah. Cents right 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 yeah and uh, I always thought that was him when I was a kid yeah he does look like, like him. Uh, and then Connie Sawyer is an elderly lady. <laughs> now it's actually important to note that she's she been looks in a like lot a of, younger version of who she is. Older. Yeah, that she was in Pineapple Express okay. also, and when Harry met Sally, um, okay. she was 105, was the oldest working actress in Hollywood she with a career away. spanning 85 years. She only died in 2018, right? So yeah, she was work because I was gonna say I was like she was old in that like. Yeah. Uh, so she was in much stuff, but yes, yeah, that's one of my favorite scenes in the movie too. Is uh, when he's like, "Let's get the bare essentials." That's the last of our dough. <laughs> what do I look like? Immediately cuts to him with that <laughs> massive hat, beer, pinwheels, and the, that's my favorite detail of the scene is the pinwheels. Yeah. Also, his purchase of Rhode Island slut. Yeah. It's like the name of the like, and the look fake, of, look like, in his eyes yeah. when he's doing it and too. He's like, Cripes! <laughs> and meanwhile, playing in the background is "Red Right Hand" by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, yeah. which is the first time I'd ever heard that song. Yeah, which has randomly been used in specifically a lot of things, but specifically in Scream in the Scream movies, I think have used that that song multiple times. Okay. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, that whole scene's funny just because. She like leaves, you know. Right, he leaves. He's like, not, he didn't have to say any of this whatsoever. But it's like, hey, I just realized like something's like that old pe- that uh, old people while slow and dangerous, dangerous behind the wheel still, can still serve a purpose. purpose. Don't you go dying on me? Yeah, like, yeah and that she's immediately like almost still his stuff. <laughs> yeah, but uh, and that she lied at first about change. No, I don't. Yeah, like you know, right? Oh, as he says. Um, now all these side characters are a chance to talk about the Fairly Brothers right. style of comedy, which is not exactly like Airplane, as you said, but it certainly shares some DNA with it in the sense of it has a loose plot structure of this happened. We, you know, the MacGuffin. We got to get the briefcase back to Mary, right. and that just gives this big 
open kind of open assembly to kind of then like have a series of scenes that almost don't exactly play like vignettes but certainly allow room and space for right. their own ways to do things and i mean similarly i do think like there is a little bit more plot going on in something about mary yeah but it's similar in terms of there's yeah they love like kind of setting up a scenario or situation and then letting and I'm sure things happen. I'm sure some of their things are improvised, but I would imagine some of them are scripted too. And it's about a little bit finding the movie as it's happening, but also cutting the things that just do not work. Right. Know? Yeah. And I mean, which it, happens frequently with comedy. Yeah. Anyways. Well, and that's kind of my favorite type of movie because, like, my favorite movie ever is Pee Wee's Big Adventure. And that's all just an excuse to have all these characters that are these weird, eccentric people. Uh, and that similarly and, has a pretty straightforward MacGuffin right. and, plot and, engine. And even a movie like Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar, which was a more modern version of this that just came out. And so there, I just love movies that do that. I feel like you can get the most out of comedy with that by just having all these characters and all these and things And Austin Power movies to an extent. Yeah. Uh, that, but they have yeah. that time travel right. some aspects yeah. to it. And but, Mustafa, of yeah. course. Um, <laughs> with Will Ferrell, yeah. yeah. But, um, yeah, and, and I just think it what works yes so much about this is that you have so many different types of people in the movie because you have the people from Providence like the regular just average everyday people living there then you have kind of the redneck folks you have certain cops you have other cops that are like chasing them you have the people in Aspen who are like these upper crust you know yeah. bougie people then you have them obviously and and the the uh, mental character, all mm-hmm. the people, the gangsters, and so you have, there's all these different types of people, and so you can get a lot of different... And they have their you know, own absurdities, but ultimately, all, one thing that all these characters can agree on is that Harry and Lloyd are uh, dumb and dumber indeed. Yeah, you know? right. <laughs> that they, yeah. You know, that they are ultimately like the objects of fascination wherever they go, ultimately, because right. you know, no matter who's weird out there, they're always going to find a way to ratchet it up to some right. extent. But, yeah. Uh, what do we think about the whole? Now you've not seen Dumb and Dumber two. No. But what do you think about the prospects of even a sequel to this movie? I feel like it's kind of. I mean, it's 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 weird because I feel like it's lightning in a bottle that's so great, but it's to the point where it's like, no, I feel like we could use more of it. Like it's just kind of a bottomless that that energy and charisma between them. I think is so palatable, uh, or palpable rather. And it's like it, immediately essential and recognizable where you're like oh we could take them and put them in all these different scenarios and situations and so in that way we got something instead like Barbara Sargo to Vista Del Mar which a lot of people like us at the time were talking about was the female dumb and dumber in its own way yeah I feel like that is a version that we've seen of that that is like yeah you can still do that type of thing but to do a sequel I don't know because I feel like what really worked about this one is that the plot was so simple and there was a simple MacGuffin and it was about desire in a romantic sense but also just about travel and and testing this bromance right and that i feel like we kind of did it and it's like okay i think it's one of those uh, i think a, a movie like this is the ultimate scenario you can find of like something that's so good that like you you want to see it redone over and over again but actually it's like well we should have just left it as the one thing because it's always going to be iconic as that one thing and again i don't even remember all that much about dumb and dumber 2 i remember just not liking it and feeling like it just fell flat and that also there was a slightly pathetic thing about seeing these actors older 
and not that they're older, but then they they're trying to look like they did in the nineties, and it was just like uh, it just doesn't. It just makes you feel like almost bad for the whole thing, you know, and just yeah. that why is this happening? Um, and then what really got me of the wor- one of the worst things about it is that Dumb and Dumber Two ends with like a clip show almost of the original movie. Yeah, and it's like. Oh, I love that. Why didn't you just re-show that again? Why didn't you yeah. just re-release that so I could see that on a big screen? Why do we have to do all this? And right. um, I don't know the exact history of that project, but I would imagine that was always this golden calf for everyone involved. That oh, we don't want to just do it for no reason. We gotta we gotta wait on the right script and the right idea. And that was certainly not it. I don't right. know why they got confused on that, but um, but one thing that is immediately memorable about this movie. Is the soundtrack, which is by far one of the strangest soundtracks I can think of for yeah. any movie, and again was a little bit of a preview for ultimately the the choices made in something like I think um, there's something about Mary, which is not exactly as obviously crazy as this is, but certainly has those like little vignettes that play out of Jonathan Richmond that interrupt the movie and are just like, oh, by the way, this is going on now. Right. And it's like, huh, okay. And that was the first time I really got to know Jonathan Richmond. And he would have, and it's so, it makes so much sense the Farrelly's would be into him based on the weird offbeat music they use in Dumb and Dumber's soundtrack. What impression or legacy to you does the Dumb and Dumber soundtrack leave just well, as, a, we, as a function well, in the movie all, and as its own thing? Okay, so in the movie first, I guess. First of all, it's just... So, I mean, I feel like all the music choices are exact. I mean, it's like very much like we want to elicit this. I mean, it's a great soundtrack as far as just like saying we want this here and this here, and it works really well. It just underlines the whole movie with the patina of just nonsense that is. When we joke about the movie, half the stuff we joke about is based on the music that is yes. accompanying the nonsense. I mean, yeah. and of course, Todd Rundgren also did a lot of songs for the movie too more of the like score um yeah for it but i mean yeah i mean i think it functions so well to the point where it almost is something outside the movie itself it's just so funny i want to talk about a couple of these first of all the boom shock a lock which is the opening song yeah Uh, immediately is like oh yeah this is what by apache indian yeah is immediately like yep there you go uh red right hand we already mentioned the use of Always random to me that that song "Get Ready," which was a cover of, well, I think Smokey Robinson wrote it, but it was made famous by Rare Earth, yeah. that band, and so that's a random like, yeah, you know, inclusion. Uh, two foot of butt crack. Which yeah. we laugh about all the time. Well, I've not heard is, the whole song and really right. studied the lyrics in of themselves, but yeah. two feet of butt crack, which like, is of course. Performed by Circle the Wagon, which okay. is just like, okay, but two foot of butt crack was all I could see is all, all that I've ever heard of the song. <laughs> and then a preview of sorts for a shot involving Jeff Daniels. Right. Yeah. Uh, let's see. There's some other songs here. A lot of these I just know by the sound. I don't know by their name exactly, mm-hmm. but uh, my Pretty favorite woman. overall, yeah, has got to be New Age Girl. By Dead Eye Dick, yeah. which is Mary Mo. Yeah. Like she's we, a vegetarian. Mary Mo. Mary Mo. Mary Mo. Mary Mo. <laughs> we literally say that all the time. Like, 
It's probably actually the biggest thing we referenced from this movie. Yeah. And then, he wanted a vegetarian meal. Yeah, yeah. And then one of my other favorite uh, is, if you don't love me, I'll kill myself. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the random moment where they're like, uh, Harry and Mary are on their like date or whatever. And they're like having this like yeah. snowball fight. That, like, she's like, meaning to be playful, and he right. immediately just ratchets up to unnecessary levels. Yeah, yeah, but if I just love, if you don't love me, I'll kill myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, there's a lot of great like inclusions here. Just a lot of question marks and yeah. Uh, and yeah. I, I've never really bought this. <laughs> I should buy. We should buy the CD and just listen yeah. to it as its own separate thing because it's just such a rando. Yeah. Aspect. Um, what do you, what legacy comedically within the nineties and then in general do you just think this movie? Well, leaves? it's a movie that I mentioned to my kids at school, and they were all automatically, like, "Oh yeah, Dumb and Dumb." It's like a movie that I feel like people like. Certain people like to talk about on a guilty pleasure level but for some yeah, reason. As we said earlier, it but everybody need to be. loves it so yeah. much. I mean, like everybody I talk to, they're like, "Oh yeah, Dumb and Dumber." Yeah, like and. It's on TV all the time. I mean, it's literally you on cable. You think part of that like, is just because it, because of that and because of it, it's just generations of people have now aged with it and don't feel the need to apologize right. for I liking it. So. Yeah, I think so. For some, that still exists. For a time, and especially people our age and kids even younger, that, that everybody just accepts this is hilarious, we love it, Yeah. you know, whatever. But yeah, I feel like that's common with a lot. And I feel like this movie made it more... Uh, acceptable to like that type of movie because it was so funny and beloved and it had these stars in it and it was just such a kind of big deal. Um, and also, I think just by nature of it coming out at Christmas time, it got more of an audience than it normally would get in its own way. And I think that might be significant to its success, maybe. I and don't I know. think a lot of it, too, again, it was popular on home video. I yeah. watched it on VHS a decent amount, but also on TV. I mean, even yeah. the edited versions. Yeah, because I, uh, when I grew up as a kid, I watched it more on like a uh, recorded TBS, VHS. I think it was. Right, the yeah. TBS version of it, yeah. and uh, Which edits things out, but the movie's so funny enough that it... It's not like if you take like something like something about Mary, which I'm a huge fan of, yeah. and I've only seen in more recent years... But like when you cut moments of and aspects of that, it will actually water down the movie. You can cut things out of this for little things to make it TV accessible, and it doesn't really neuter the movie all that much compared yeah. to something like because that. I mean the that's the, also just rated R. The as toilet a movie. scene also just like is so funny, but it doesn't have to show anything, right? So it's probably one of the nastiest scenes in any <laughs> movie I've ever seen that doesn't show us anything really yeah. it, but but the it's all about Jeff Daniels so technically you can't the cut anything effects right. too, yeah. technically you can't cut anything from that so it's kind of like I, I guarantee you the censors had a hard time with that because it's so nasty but it's like well nothing's <laughs> happening like you know other than yeah but and of course that mo- flush you beast yeah. <laughs> and that, and, again that was all an appetizer yeah. to Franks and Beans and that right. whole moment in obviously yeah. that and that actually does show something semi-graphic obviously right that, but so. but yeah so I think that that's what's so great about the movie is that it, it allowed people to like that type of movie almost and but people still have trouble with that one sometimes but also nothing that's come after that has been that good either mm-hmm. um, and so of that type of movie that people can all rally around and say they like it's it's kind of hard to get there and do yep. that. So, yep. So that's Dumb and Dumber. 
from 1994. Again, uh, check out that and Stranger in Paradise back to back. I think they'll. Yeah, uh, again, I think make it does line up pretty well. And I think you came up with that pairing, yeah. which I thought was interesting because I wouldn't have thought those two movies together. But mm-hmm. they're both totally different types of movies, but about very similar things. I think, and yeah. so and both great in their yeah. own ways. Mm-hmm. So. That does it for this week. This these, these weeks, weeks. These weeks. Back in the days. Uh, episode, but Jeff Probst. What have we got next week? Stay tuned for scenes from our next episode. I'm just living the dream. <laughs> <laughs> That's unbelievable. Oh man, I feel like wow. It's like I come over. It's like I don't know what to expect. I got to be honest. I come in. It's like. A little like I'm trying to get my bearings. There's cartoons, your mom, and it's like you still got it. Look at her, just living the dream. I love that. You know what? I will have some meatloaf. Let's have some meatloaf. You want some? I knew you'd come. Hey, mom! The meatloaf! We want it now! The meatloaf! What is she doing? I never know what she's doing back there. Just living the dream. Where'd you get that girl? She's hot. I got her yesterday. Yesterday? Yeah. I rode my bike over to a cemetery nearby. Her boyfriend just died. You met her at a funeral? Yeah. Dude died in a hang gliding accident. What an idiot. (laughs) Oh, I'm hang gliding. Honey, take a good picture. I'm dead. (laughs) What a freak. Men are at a funeral. Yeah, I'll throw in a wedding every now and then. But funerals are insane. The chicks are so horny, it's not even fair. It's like fishing with dynamite. Horny? Yeah. Crazy horny. I'm just at a funeral. Grief is nature's most powerful aphrodisiac. <laughs> Look it up. I didn't know that. That's what I've learned. My the meatloaf! Patrick, thanks so much for looking after Courtney. Dorcia, how impressive. How on earth did you get a reservation there? Lucky, I guess. That's a wonderful suit. Don't tell me, don't tell me, let me guess. Mm, Valentino Couture. Uh-huh. Mm. You look so soft. Your compliment was sufficient, Louis. Hello, Halber Stram. Nice tie. How the hell are you? Alan has mistaken me for this dickhead Marcus Halberstram. It seems logical because Marcus also works at PNP and in fact does the same exact thing I do. He also has a pension for Valentino suits and Oliver Peoples glasses. Marcus and I even go to the same barber, although I have a slightly better haircut. So how's the ransom account going, Marcus? It's, uh, it's all right. Really? That's interesting. It's not, uh, it's not great. Oh, well, you know. So how's Cecilia? She's a great girl. Oh, yeah. I'm very lucky. Mm-hmm. Hey, Alan. Congratulations on the Fisher account. Thank you, Baxter. Listen, Paul, squash. Call me. What, Friday? No can do. I got an 830 res at Dorcia. Great. Sea urchin ceviche. Dorcia on Friday night. How'd he swing that? I think he's lying. Graham? New card. What do you think? Whoa. Very nice. Look at that. Picked them up from the printers yesterday. Good coloring. That's bone. And the lettering is something called Cillian Braille. It's very cool, Bateman. 
but that's nothing. Look at this. That is really nice. Eggshell with Romalian type. What do you think? Nice. Jesus. <laughs> that is really super. How did a nitwit like you get so tasteful? <laughs> I can't believe that Bryce prefers Van Patten's card to mine. But wait. You ain't seen nothing yet. Raised lettering. Pale Nimbus. White. Impressive. Very nice. Mm. Let's see Paul Allen's card. subtle off-white coloring, a tasteful thickness of it. Oh my god, it even has a watermark. Something wrong? Patrick? You're sweating. Mom, the meatloaf! <laughs> so what you just heard was two clips, one of which was from Wedding Crashers. 2005 i believe mm -hmm. and american psycho from 2000 now see when we originally came up with this idea of oh let's maybe transition to doing these double feature pairings yeah there's a website i can't remember what it was that you can like put in like the number of movie random movies i think that's taken from imdb and it just gives you these random combos or right. like series of how many ever you pick and this was one early on that i just said like all right two random movies and hit it and it generated a bunch of random ones, and you know, we actually some of the other movies we'll be doing eventually yeah. are from that right. list. But one of the pairings was Wedding Crashers and American Psycho, and I immediately laughed because I was like, "Oh my god, I've actually not even seen Wedding Crashers." By the way, we have yeah, this, we have. So we're going to be watching it, so this. This will be new. the first movie that we've ever watched for the pod that is we have new. not seen. Yeah, you know, it is a subject of right. the pod, uh, and. But uh, you know what it is. I mean, you've seen the clips here and there. Um, now, we've both seen American Psycho, mm -hmm. so we both already have yeah. knowledge it's been and some years understanding ago. of that. Yeah. But immediately I laughed, and I'm like, oh my God, these are fact, both about like either man-children and or sociopathic toxic masculinity. Right. Uh, and it's just funny that one's obviously a very you know, rip-roaring, mainstream, R-rated comedy, and one is a very dark, twisted satire, though, in its it own way. I mean, that funny, and yeah. that that scene we played of the cards and showing those off is a very satirical, openly satirical scene that wants you to laugh at the absurdity right. that these characters are putting into the importances of that. Um, but I immediately saw that pairing and laughed. I said, oh, we got to do this for the yeah. pod. So, And it will be a chance for us to watch the Wedding Crashers yeah. and maybe talk about, actually compare even a little bit how comedy from the 90s was changing by the comedy of the 2000s as far as in a mainstream way Yeah, already by that point. We're pretty, I'd say we're big fans of Owen Wilson in terms of especially his yeah. work within uh, Wes Anderson's mm -hmm. films. Vince Vaughn a little more nonplussed no, by. I, I mean, not, I, I've liked him in certain things, but yeah, overall... Uh, yeah. No. I mean, he's a great leading man for the like S. Craig Zoller movies. Yeah, it's yeah. like, yeah, 
I mean, literally, you want to talk about violence in movies. Literally, his yeah. the ending of Brawl in Cell Block 99 yeah. is literally the most probably one of the most violent things I've ever seen. It's yeah. just like, well, that whole movie is one of the most violent things ever, but yeah. But, I, you know, I've seen clips of Wedding Crashers, uh, and they make a good pairing, I think. Though, yeah, I would think of, so. Like, as yeah. for a well, I remember when that sorts. movie came out, it was a big deal. It was a big home video hit. Matter of fact, I've never... I don't think I've ever mentioned this to you or not, and I was thinking about talking about this next week, but I'll bring it up briefly. At our church many years ago, and I'll tell you all fair who it was. It's not a big deal or anything, but I'll I'll just to not yeah. mention them. Somebody at our church, they had a minivan, and uh, I got in the back of it one time for something, and the like, an empty Wedding Crashers DVD case was in the back of their vehicle. <laughs> and I've always remembered that as being like, what? What yeah. was so random was that it was empty. It wasn't even in there. And, and it was, was just it? like, where was, was the it? old MacGuffin. It might have even been from Flick Video. I can't remember, mm-hmm. which is a video store we had around here. Uh, yeah. But I don't remember that for sure. Okay. But yeah, I've always remembered that and so it's finally going to be like oh we're finally going to get to watch this movie i've always wanted to randomly do it but talk a little bit about american psycho this movie and the book of course written by brett easton ellis was a huge deal when it came out now we've not read the book but we've seen the movie um very controversial i think the movie is almost critic proof in the sense of there are things about the narrative you can critique but also as a satire that allows it to kind of say well it was all a joke or part of the game or part of the story or whatever and brett easton ellis is kind of his own slightly obnoxious uh figure who revels in being he's been lightly canceled but not totally i think but based on some like homophobic things he said or something well then it turned out he is gay and so he basically had to out himself i think based on some stuff that happened or something i don't remember all the details about that we'll look that up before next week now and i feel like um, (coughs) he's randomly like sort of best friends with donna tart who wrote the goldfinch they went to the same writing school together Mm -hmm. um so yeah they were like big they were like best friends back when they first kind of started now, writing. Um, again, I try um, to say this as yeah. a very historically conscious person, obviously. I feel like even in the late 80s, early 90s, to make the links between Wall Street and uh, being a serial killer was not the biggest, most original leaps to make, yeah. i got to say. Um, even then, in the early 90s or when it came out. Uh, nonetheless, it is a metaphor and a satirical template that obviously is making a statement about the 80s, which we were already racking on a little bit earlier, Mm -hmm. Um, and just this sense of like hustle culture that certainly was in keeping in the 80s and in its own way is still alive now. Um, What do you think in general about the narrative of American Psycho as satire or as a work of its own way horror? Well, that's what I was. we were talking about earlier when we were going to talk about this, is I was saying that I don't really like this movie, at least in memory, but that I really love and respect the concept and think it's really important that, yeah, that isn't that big of a leap to make, but he was kind of the first to really make that leap. What do we think of Christian Bale's performance in it? Uh, I mean, he's really good, I think, in it, and it it asks a lot of him, so uh, I'll be happy to watch the movie again because I haven't seen it I will say, like, truly one of the most chilling things I've ever seen in a movie is where he's, like, doing the skin peel off his face, and he talks about Patrick Bateman as a performance and the abstraction of Patrick Bateman and all that, even still, in isolation, is a very chilling Mm -hmm. scene that I still keep with me, so... uh, yeah, we're going to be talking about Wedding Crashers and uh, American Psycho next week. 
But before we head out this week, I wanted to play uh, just in tribute to John Lurie and the Lounge Lizards, one of my very favorite tracks from Voice of Chunk, which was their third album, my personal favorite album from them. Uh, Paper Bag and The Sun, most is, uh, as was the case with most of their stuff, instrumental. Um, but yeah, any last thoughts on this episode, Levi, before we no. get played out here? Nope, I think we're good. All right, so this is Kyle. This is Levi. Take care. God bless.